This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 204. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lam Ramiyasha. And today it is once again time for our monthly news roundup. But we might as well call this a bi-monthly news roundup because we got news <laughs> from the past two months. Because oh. as you recall news last month was so stacked that we had to save some for this month and wouldn't you know what the news this month is also enormous so we're saving some of that news and pushing that to our simulpubs episode there's too much going on but there will be plenty of news to talk about there was some big stuff that happened in the manga industry in may and anime wise too that will have a plenty to say about tons to talk about regarding new serializations new licenses big industry shakeups and so much more so lots lots to talk about once again that means we'll be moving a lot of lists and poll news and the npd bookskin report back to the next episode but there's still gonna be plenty of really worthwhile discussion on a lot of really interesting news stories on this episode we're drowning in news send help <laughs> oh god yeah i like I say this every news episode, I know I'm a broken record. There's just there's too much to talk about. We can't keep up. There's too much. There's so much. E- even even with us consolidating news to next episode, there's still too much. Ah, uh, and we and we still have like stuff to talk about at the top of the show, which I guess we'll just get out of the way here real quick. Um, so I just want to say first off, I hope everybody has enjoyed uh, our last few episodes of the podcast where we've been covering a lot of Toriyama stuff lately. You know, we did episodes on both Akira Toriyama's Manga Theater Collection and Dr. Slump with some really big guests for both of them. And, uh, I really hope everybody has been enjoying those episodes. We had a lot of fun recording those. And, uh, you know, our Toriyama stuff doesn't even end there because, uh, just to get into Patreon stuff real quick, at the time of this recording, you can listen to our latest monthly bonus this podcast, which uh, you can listen to at the $5 tier on our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mavericks, uh, where we had our good friend Randy from We Got a Podcast uh, to talk about Kintoki, which was a one shot that Toriyama made back in 2010. And uh, we basically revisited it after a whole decade and uh, basically reevaluated how we felt about it ever since the first time we read it. And uh, it was an interesting discussion, a very short discussion. It might be one of the shortest podcasts we've ever recorded. It, it might be it might be a record holder. Yeah, it was only about 40-something minutes, which is quite rare for us to have a podcast that's even under an hour. Yup. <laughs> it is a rare occasion for us these days. So, indeed, I mean, there was only so much to say, I suppose, about a 30-some page one-shot that ultimately we all kind of came to the conclusion that it was fine. It's Toriyama, so there's a lot to like about it, but also it's a derivative of a lot of what Toriyama does. But I think we had a fun discussion with Randy about, like, what are some of the appealing qualities in it that we generally still enjoy about any of Toriyama's works, and then what are some of the tropes and tricks that kind of get tiresome over time? The patterns that we kind of are like, well, we've seen this. (laughs) Does he have any new ideas? And stuff like that. So, you know, I think it was a fun discussion on a one-shot that's sadly not terribly available in English in a legal capacity, which is bizarre, but maybe one day, hey, if they release more Toriyama one-shot collections, you know, maybe one day that'll give Kentucky a chance for a proper print publication and more easy access. Unless you have the issue of Jump that it was in, then 
otherwise, no, it's not available at all, unfortunately. But yeah, it was it was a good discussion, despite how we felt about the one shot. It, it was just it was just interesting to be in this space where it's like, I know the one shot isn't like terribly interesting most of the time, but it still has a lot of stuff. It still has a lot of like Toriyama isms that we both enjoy. So it was it was kind of interesting kind of going back and forth between those feelings. And it was weirdly hard to put my feelings about this one shot into words. I, I feel like I actually kind of repeated myself a lot in the discussion, but it was still fun. What was also interesting was also to put into context of the other like one shots that were being done at the time by other like returning authors, you know, so we touched upon that as well. I read through those and we both read uh, different ones of those. And yeah, there's interesting things to say. Yeah, we have to fill the discussion with other things surrounding the one shot because there just wasn't like a whole lot to talk about on its own. But mm-hmm. uh, that makes it sound like it wasn't a, a, like an interesting discussion. Like it was. There was still like things to talk about, especially when comparing this to like Toriyama's backlog of like other stuff he's made. And yeah, basically, if you liked our recent Toriyama related podcast and you want more discussions of his work until we can get to more of his stuff in the future, go to the Patreon at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Listen to our bonus podcast on the Kintoki one shot to whet your appetite. But uh, speaking of Patreon stuff, uh, we have two new patrons we have to shout out, which is really cool. Big shout outs to both Eric and Matt for signing up for our Patreon recently. Uh, We really, really appreciate you guys and your patronage. And we appreciate anyone who signs up for our Patreon. And you know what? No matter what tier you sign up for, we will shout you out on the next podcast we have to record right after you sign up. So once again, big thanks to Eric and Matt for signing up. We really appreciate your patronage. And uh, actually, we can kind of use that to uh, transition into one other thing we need to get to before uh, news, because uh, Eric actually sent us an email, and uh, I think we should read it. Yeah, so Eric had a question about identifying a manga and specifically like a manga page that they had encountered when they were scrolling through Twitter a few weeks ago. And so they sent us kind of their own artist rendering of the page that they saw and they sent us a description of it. They say that they only saw a few screen caps of it on Twitter about two months ago. They didn't bookmark the tweet, but they really want to read it and study the art style because they are inspiring comic artists. And the memory of the art style is really seared into their mind. And so uh, their description of it is that the protagonist in the foreground of the page seems to be a young girl with long, somewhat wild black hair. The art style had really bold ink lines almost all over everything. And the artists often used streaks of bubbles and sparkles that gave the look of the manga a nebulous dreamlike quality. And if they were color collected, the art included streaks of take brushy strokes that almost flowed throughout the page and the full page panel had the girl in a bookstore or what looked like a manga store seemingly looking at another character in glasses like looking at a book or putting up a flyer or something based on their drawing so they asked us if we could like help identify this because they're trying to compile a list of manga with unique creative stunning visual art styles because that's the kind of art they want to make and they want to study the work of these artists and they've tried using Reddit to help and Twitter's van search, but they did not turn up any results. And yeah, so they thought they would reach out and see if we could help ID it. And they really liked the podcast and they say like, good luck with everything. And yeah, they really uh, just wanted to reach out and see if like we could help ID it. Now I uh, have not had a ton of time. I did try and see if I, 
you know, if I could scroll through some tweets two months from some accounts to follow to see if I could figure this out. Just from the description alone, nothing immediately came to mind. I don't know if I have encountered this exact page that Eric is uh, describing, but... You know, based on the description, I have a feeling that it, you know, may be from a shoujo or jose manga. I was thinking that too, yeah. So I was going through some accounts that specialize in posting tweets, uh, screen caps of the series, but I couldn't really come up with anything, and I might be off the mark there. But I think, you know, it would be something that we're interested in continuing to investigate. But also, I think that by mentioning on the show, perhaps, you know, one of you listeners out there, you know, if this description rings a bell, and maybe we can reach out to Eric to ask for, you know, their permission if they want to share this drawing uh, on social or in our podcast post for people to reference and maybe see if they can research and figure it out too. That could be helpful. But yeah, like... I appreciate the email and the challenge of trying to, you know, ID and identify it. And I really, really admire their effort to, like, kind of collect a lot of different artist references from artists they admire and visualists artists they admire to, you know, guide them in their own artist journey. And I really want to support and am super encouraging of that. I think that's really awesome. So shout outs to you, Eric. Yeah, I think that's really cool that you're, you know, really looking to study like a lot of really cool artists and your own uh, development as an artist and yeah i definitely would love to help i continue to help so you know we'll continue to keep an eye out see if we can figure out anything and if any of you out there from the description maybe it rings a bell to you definitely reach out to us and we can relate to eric and if we can't find this exact page or series maybe uh an interesting thing would be try to come up with styles pages uh that might be similar aesthetically that could be a good reference for eric as well and i think that'd be a cool thing no for sure uh we'll definitely investigate this further and try to find whatever we can I do apologize that we don't have an answer at the moment, but we'll try to do what we can. And hey, Eric, thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks for enjoying it. We we really appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you so much, Eric. Your support and your kind words really mean a lot to us. And yeah, I mean, again, our listeners' support and their enthusiasm for the show is what keeps us going. And we really, really just are so grateful and appreciative of it and yeah we definitely uh want to you know pay back help back our fans who are you know so supportive of us as well Mm -hmm. so hey um everybody listening out there if you happen to have an answer to eric's query you know again email us at mangamavericks at gmail.com and once again we will relay it back to eric and yeah just just let us know if uh you're able to uh find anything before us absolutely but yeah i think it's about time to move on to news Yes, and we'll be starting off with some serialization news, and we got a lot of new series from some authors that, you know, I really enjoy, and I think we really enjoy, and that's Akiko Gashimura we're starting off with. They are coming up with a new series that's going to be running in Kokohana Magazine, and that is called Gintaro-san Otani Mosu. That's already debuted in the latest issue of Kokohana, the August issue. And the description of this story, well, we don't really have a description of it. It just says that this is a new series. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing what this will be about. 
And I am ever so hopeful that we continue, you know, she's continuing to publish so many more different series. Like she's put one of her series on hiatus to publish a new series. And it's like, I really would like to see more of her works get licensed and published over here. We got Fake Affair earlier this year on Webtoon and I read that and it was really enjoyable and I would like to read more because she has so many other works and now it's just adding another one to her oeuvre so yeah very much interested in seeing what this series is going to be all about too more Higashimura please thank you absolutely and now we have a new manga that is also coming out from Satoshi Shiki who is the artist of The Legend of Doro Hyakimaru, which we talked about briefly on our Doro episode. I really enjoy the art style and the reinterpretation of Doro that Chiki drew. And they are coming up with a new series that has debuted as of the July issue of Monthly Shonen series that came out on May 26th called Demon Princess. And it adapts the original story that was written by Biori Harunohi, and it's about a demon girl who constantly dreams of a world full of light in a modern world full of schools, trains, brushes, fans, family, and movies and books. And at the end of that dream, she finds herself in a white room before being engulfed in darkness and waking up again. As she yearned so much for that world of light that when a summoning circle appeared before her, she stepped into it and awakened into the body of a baby with a holy kingdom. So I think that Shiki is a really cool artist, and this series seems to play into that psychological action element that they did so well with Dororo and Hyakimaru. So I'm definitely keen to follow along with the series. And, you know, of course, I enjoyed Before the Fall, which they also did as well. So, yeah, I'm hoping that this work, if it ends up being successful, will also get popular here because I'm definitely keen to read more Shiki's works. But speaking of Dororo spinoffs, Dororo is getting another new spin-off set's reinterpretation that is going to be coming later this year. And it's going to be a kind of co-production collaboration between Media Do, Tesco Production, and a South Korean comic company called Copen Communications. It's a Japanese South Korean vertical scrolling webcomic remake of Dororo. And basically it's like a complete reimagining because it's like Dororo set in the modern day, essentially. And it's going to serialize simultaneously in Japan and South Korea starting in December and a global release is going to come out after the South Korean installation concludes. Which leads me to believe if they have the international release plan for after the serialization includes that this will probably be a mini series of sorts or just a short serialization. But basically the premise of this new Doros manga is that yeah, it's moving the setting to the modern day and yokai criminals are conspiring with each other in the shadows and they <laughs> basically use science instead of magic now and Hyakimaru's kind of renamed himself as Haki in this new age and still seeking his lost body parts and he has an encounter with a new boy named Roro who bears an uncanny resemblance to his old traveling buddy Dororo hmm Dororo Roro what a connection what are the odds so yeah you know this is interesting to have a Dororo series set in the modern day and I guess it's kind of like a little bit of a tragic moment that Hayaki Mario, you know immortal had to go through centuries more and still has not collected all 48 of those body parts but hey maybe in this story he will accomplish that goal which he was not able to accomplish in the original manga so definitely keen to see what this will turn out to be like and of course you know even though 
in the discussion we had, we found the door maybe didn't hold up as well as we had hoped. I still have fondness for the characters in Oral Private, so I'm definitely keen to see how this reinterpretation uh, reimagines it. Now, there are also other uh, manga actors or creators going to Webtoon as well, and that includes Boichi. Boichi is doing a series for Webtoon, and they are launching the series with Shinankyo Onishi's author, Ian Wanyon, and this is going to come up uh, in the Line manga app in mid-2023, and it's called Super String. It's going to be tied to the Korean company Y-Lab Super String IP, which features characters from their different works in one universe. And it's like a manga primarily focused, but also uh, their enterprise includes films, musicals, live action works and games and stuff. They're multimedia franchise company. But Boy G's series will center on one man's story of protecting his family and fighting alone. And in the story, here's some various dimensions are going to come to return for a war. So... I am curious to see if this will get a simultaneous English release as well. With this being on the Limonger app, I wonder, hope that it will be published over on a webtoon or in our platform over here with a simultaneous release. So I'm curious about it, and I don't really have much awareness or knowledge of YLab or their Super Strange franchise, but Boyji's art in general is enough to carry and sell me on checking out a series of his. So definitely curious to see what his next work will be like, and if this is going to be his primary commitment uh, going forward, or is it going to be another one of his, like, side manga, but he somehow is maniac who can do multiple manga at once on top of weekly serialization, so is he gonna, is he still planning to continue to return to Jump uh, in addition, or for weekly serialization in addition to this new Doom project? Who knows? But it'll be interesting to see. But uh, speaking of spinoffs, another classic franchise is getting a spinoff manga. Yeah. And it was announced in Shogaku Khan's big comic Zokan recently that uh, Gogol 13 will be getting a new spinoff manga. Uh, not a whole lot of info is out about it right now at the time of this recording. Uh, the magazine has not revealed the title of the spinoff. All we have is basically the silhouette of the main character of the spinoff. But the magazine is teasing that the character is a girl who is popular and well-known among fans of Gogo 13. She is beautiful, intelligent, extremely athletic, and may have Duke Togo's genes, quote-unquote. So, um... That's interesting. Uh, this will be debuting in the August issue on July 15th. And all I could think is, man, did Gogo 13 ever have like a kid? Is that something that's happened? Because I genuinely don't know what they could be implying here otherwise. Yeah, I, I do wonder. I mean, do they mean literally this girl carries Duke Togo's genes? Is she the reincarnation of Gogo 13? Yeah, I mean... That maybe they mean that metaphorically of like, oh, she has like the same DNA, like skills or, you know, she's very connected. I mean, the cover image has like a DNA spiral. So like it seems to heavy lean on the idea that, you know, they are related genetically. So I guess who knows? Maybe this is Duke Togo's daughter <laughs> or something. Like, the guy slept around, so I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> As we all know, uh, Duke Togo liked to fuck a lot. <laughs> uh, that was that was that was his whole thing. Uh, aside from being a, uh, uh, the world's best sniper, but 
you know. Yeah, I don't know if that was his whole thing, but that was a part of uh, his his character, his like hard boiled character and all that. I'm sure it was hard anyway. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, as we as we all know, uh, Gogol thirteen has an incredible penis. <laughs> yeah. I love we we got to cover Gogo 13 on the show at some point. I think that would be I think that would make for a really fun episode. Yeah. But um yeah, I I'm interested in seeing what this ends up being. I am going to laugh really hard if like if for some reason this girl is like a, like a super popular idol but also is just like the next Gogo 13 on the side maybe maybe she leads like a double life i think that's what the premise is leading towards is that i mean this is like a very popular you know girl but then you know she has you know the genes of dutogo so she has the same preclinations to be a assassin as well you know she has like the same kind of skills that make her good at the job so we'll see i guess we'll see indeed and something that we will also see about, or I suppose in this case, we won't be seeing any more, but we'll see how it'll turn out in the ending, is uh, I mean, there are a lot of different series ending. And one of them is My Love Mix-Up, which is, you know, the recent series of Maruko and Artado Hinekore. It has basically wrapped up at the time of you listening to this, it ended in the most recent issue of Asatsu Margaret on uh, June 13th. And from what I have heard through the grapevine, from people keeping up with my love makes up and the most recent chapters, is that this feels like it might be an abrupt ending for people who have been following it. And so a lot of people were kind of upset, like, wait a minute, it's ending already? And so that... Makes me curious to see, like, how the ending's gonna turn out. I definitely have enjoyed, like, the first uh, volume and stuff of the series and am keen to follow it through to the end. And, yeah, I just hope that it does nail the ending, even if it seems like it's coming at a abrupt time pacing-wise. Maybe, like, the conclusion will be strong enough to make the sobbing point makes sense. But, you know, this was one of the more popular shoujo that have been discussed recently. You know, I see a lot of discussion about it in the webs and the fandom, and it's like, okay. It definitely feels like something that a lot of people are set that is ending so soon, especially because it's like a relatively short series. It'll be like nine volumes long, ultimately. But I think that's a solid run all the same. So yeah, just keen to see its truth in the end, which based on Viz's release schedule should probably be by the end of the year we might get that, or early next year. So definitely keen, definitely keen to read that. Other series that are ending pretty soon include Maggie K. That'll be ending on the next issue of Kana Magazine on June 30th. And this series, not for the faint of heart, you know, it's, uh, I guess it's, <laughs> you could you literally say it's like a war manga. It's like definitely about getting sexual gratification, about e- eating someone else and being eaten. Uh, it's a very kinky manga, but, you know, it's very <laughs> enjoyable in how it explores that game, explores the psychology of the characters, you know. It definitely puts me out of my comfort zone, but I still find it very compelling. It's very beautifully drawn. So, uh, you know, Maru Scissor is like a riff. 
really good artist, especially when it comes to like, you know, monster designs and stuff like that. So yeah, that's going to be ending soon. And I think ultimately it'll be about three volumes long. So yeah, we should probably get that third volume out in Japan soon after it ends and hopefully hear from Sublime soon after that. And I'm definitely keen to read that screw to the end as well. And now there have been a string of Shonen Jump series that have ended recently as well. And this includes MHA Vigilantes over on Shonen Jump Plus. You know, it was in its final arc for a while. And a lot of us who've been reading was like, oh, when is it going to end? This final battle, it feels like it went on forever. And it did go on for like a year and a half. But it was, uh, you know, we had differing opinions over it on MHA Pop. But I enjoyed that battle. And I enjoyed... It's through to the end, and yeah, I think it had a really solid wrap-up, and I think that ultimately the characters are just very strong. I think that the points they're trying to make, the overall teens fit in well with the main series' philosophy as a good support to that, particularly this idea of, like, you know, any ordinary person has the qualities it takes to become a hero with just a push in the right direction, and I think it explored that really well through its main character. And, you know, really interesting lore additions, of course, to the world of Mache. So, really enjoyed it, and you can hear my thoughts on the last couple chapters of Vigilantes on the last couple episodes of the My Hero Academy podcast covering the series, because I was on the last couple talking about the most recent chapters, including the latest one and final one talking about the last chapter. So, you can refer to that uh, in links and show notes and stuff if you want to hear more thoughts on the series and how it ended and stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited to finally get to Vigilantes on the show here at some point, because we, we do want to cover it along with a bunch of other uh, My Hero Academia stuff in the future, hopefully. Indeed. Now that Vigilantes has properly ended, we can plan for an eventual Horikoshi Month 2 or MHA Month 2. Yes. Can't wait. Yeah. We may as well wait for the main series again, too, and do a full-on retrospective of that as well. But it is something to plan for in the future. Now, the MHA Vigilantes had a good, healthy, long run of six years, but the next two series that ended in Shonja proper, unfortunately, did not have uh, quite as long a run, about a half a year each, and that is Ayashimon and Protecting Ishigamaro both ended in the most recent issues of Shonen Jump. Ayashimon with 25 chapters total, Protecting Shigamaro with 26 chapters total, which is funny because, you know, Ayashimon started before Shigamaro, and Shigamaro ended up having more chapters because Ayashimon ended up taking a break, and because it started first, it still ended first. But I would say that having read both of these, keeping up with both of these, and having read them through to the end, I enjoyed both, and I am most disappointed with Ayashimon ending because there is just so much more to explore with its world and characters. But I think Protect Me Shugamaro overall, I found a lot of consistent weekly enjoyment and endearment in it. And also, I feel like it had the more satisfying ending of the two. Because, I mean, it found the right point in which to pivot to a wrap-up. And while there was clearly more that they could have, you know, as the series, and if the series had run longer, they could have given more time to develop. It didn't feel so abrupt as to feel so rushed that I, it took 
me out of it. I could still appreciate what it was going for and the twists of the final couple chapters. And more importantly, the last chapter ended on a very sweet note in terms of like, you know, talking about the characters and the relationships and like Shikamar literally looking towards you, the reader, and waving goodbye. I thought was very sweet. Oh, that's nice. So I was pretty satisfied with Shikamaru's ending. Ayashimon, unfortunately, it had a series with just such an interesting world and characters and mystery that was leading to be explored. Great action. It had a lot of great stuff going for it. But unfortunately, I think that Yuji Kaku got wind that he had to end the series early, you know, at a point where he was always setting up for a completely different arc. And so that arc ended up getting curtailed just immediately to pivot to another direction to touch on another aspect of the Ayashimon underworld that hadn't been explored yet and needed to be fleshed out. And then by pivoting to there, he could also have like kind of pseudo proxy stand for what a final battle in the series would be in terms of Maruo versus Dapo. Like, because the hotel manager guy, you know, as a Tanuki could transform into Dapo. So they could have a sort of proxy battle in that way, even though Maruo didn't have closure in a final fight with Dapo. But, and so... I I, pre- I understood, like, why he decided to make that choice, because he didn't want to leave, like, that aspect of the world unexplored, I think, with the hotel manager, but I also feel like he, he kind of completely short-drifted the post-club guy, because he, he was, like, supposed to be one of four big executives, and then he, like... You know, you immediately turn away from whatever that arc was supposed to be in that character. So I think that kind of undermined that aspect of it. And also, you know, there was never any closure or comeuppance to the fact that a lot of the biker gang subordinates were taken out by the cabaret people that took over the host club or whatever. But uh, then in the ending, I feel like, you know, obviously there's... There was this big overarching mystery of like, you know, what happened with the will of Arara's father? Why did Dapo get named the successor and stuff like that? And then what, what is Dapo's true motivation? He was such a completely different person before. What changed about him? What are his true feelings about, you know, Arara's father, the previous chairman of the syndicate and whatnot and all that stuff. And, you know, that stuff, unfortunately, is just not resolved. That We don't get to touch on that. Like, it's mentioned in the final chapter, oh, there's probably something more there. But, like, we don't get actually learn what's more there. And, of course, you don't actually get closure of, like, Maru actually beating Napo. Like, the final page of the chapter is them about to fight. And I feel like it's just left felt wanting with that and I was like oh man I would have preferred just more closure I I appreciate a lot of the sentiments going in to the ending of the series what with focusing on you know Maro been motivated so long to be a shonen uh, manga protagonist you know to have like a great fight and also to go out in a blaze of glory but now he has grown to the point of recognizing oh wait shonen manga protagonists they don't just fight for themselves they fight for other people and he has gained a friend group now he gained people he wants to protect and fight for and focusing on that aspect and his connection and relationship with Arara as a fellow outcast who has now found you know a companionship and solidarity with and so I like focusing in on that in the final chapter too but I just felt man in terms of the overall story I was left wanting with the, the ending uh, but but yeah, I think it's a shame, especially that Ayashimon ended. But, you know, Yuji Kaku, he had a, se- a sexual series of Hell's Paradise. I'm sure that their next work can be a hit. It's just a shame. That, it's a surprising shame that it did not catch on. 
Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm behind on a lot of jump right now, so I hadn't really been keeping up with Ayashimon past a certain point. But even skimming through that last chapter, I could tell, like, oh man, they just really kind of skipped over a lot it's of stuff. It's not an ending. It's like a stopping point. It's there have been one more chapter, maybe to just at least have the fight, maybe wrap up some of the mysteries with Dapo and his motivations. And it's like, oh man, Kaku deserves at least like an epilogue on Jump Plus. I think he's yeah. on that. <laughs> I, I would hope. I really wish Ayashimon will get an epilogue and something included in the final volume that properly concludes the story. Because it really did lead me wanting. For a series that up to that point was so good, so enjoyable. And, you know, unfortunately, that just final pivot towards trying to get as much that he wanted to do in the story out as possible before it concluded, I... I just felt wanting by the story decisions. Whereas Shugamaro, I will say, I think pivoted towards his ending more successfully. And of course, it helped that Shugamaro had less to resolve necessarily, but it still did in a way that left me feeling, oh, you know, Shugamaro, that was an enjoyable series. That was very satisfying. And ultimately, I, you know, I could have read more, but I am not left dissatisfied with my experience having read it. I felt like I got closure. I felt like I got you know, a proper story out of it. When I asked when I felt like, ah, this is an incomplete story. Like, I enjoyed so much about this, but I'm just so frustrated that it just did not get to do everything it wanted to do and actually have an ending. Mm, well, I'm, I'm really sorry to hear that, but uh, just give me one second here and... Uh, okay. All right. <laughs> and... All right, it's added to the list of cancelled show to jump manga we will cover eventually. Okay. I thought that PD was, ca- I thought the sound was PD coming and you were just like, you know, giving him texts and stuff like that. He was like panting. No, uh, no, my bit was that I was trying to write down the titles of, um, of these titles on our list, even though, uh, we don't have a written list. We just have a Google doc and my bit failed. It's fine. Um, we'll cover these eventually. Again, like part of the purpose of you know, like our Jump Stop podcast is to like kind of give ourselves enough time away from some of these series. So that way we could see like how we feel about them like a couple years out, because I, I just think that makes for a more interesting discussion, which is why it takes us longer to get to these. But I I, I think it's worth it in the end. Yeah. But man, it's just such a shame. I just find didn't even last until the Hell's Paradise anime came out. Man, that that's, that's a great unfortunate. promotion. Man, just poor timing. And I can't believe, you know, it's I, I enjoy, I don't dislike Doron Doron, but it was definitely my least favorite of the three. And it's just a shame that, you know, the two of those three in that batch, that tier lace round that I liked, <laughs> has ended and Doron is still continuing on just a little bit longer. I mean, we, we, we talked about this on our last, like, jump retrospective on our Patreon that um, I had a feeling that Doron Doron was going to last past Ayashimon just because I feel like... Doran Dororan is probably, like, the easier series for people to get into. It's not, like, as dense. I don't know if Ayashimon was terribly dense. It was fairly action-focused, I felt. I feel like Doran Dororan is... Maybe not dense, but, like, a lot heavier, maybe? It is, yeah, more emotionally heavier, uh, for sure. Even though Doran Dororan, you know, attempts at some dark stuff, but then it just immediately brushes it off, so it's (laughs) like, well, you didn't really let this sink in. Doran Doran has really weird pacing and plotting decisions. But hey, watch Doran Doran get an anime, though. I bet that'll happen. <laughs> I don't know. At this point, it feels like it'll eke out to the next serialization round, but I don't see it lasting beyond that because it's not 
doing terribly well in sales or the poll placements, the table of contents placements. So I don't know about uh, its long-term success at this point. You think it'll end by the end of the year? I do think so. I, I, I feel fairly confident in that. Uh, I don't think there's not too much else is doing so because a lot of other newer series ha- are performing a little better in terms of popularity and attention than it, I think. So mm-hmm. fair. We'll see. But uh, I don't it's not doing particularly great right now, but I guess it just did well enough, just enough better than Ayashima and Shigamara, unfortunately. Of course, you know, with Jump Series removed, new series come in, and we'll definitely be talking about Aliens Arena and Rory Dragon on our Simulpups episode next. Oh my god, we have so many new Simulpups to talk about next episode. I'm actually really excited to get to a lot of them. And hopefully they will be worthy replacements uh, for these series. Though I will say, not super sold on Aliens Arena just yet, but you know, maybe that'll change by the time we actually record the Simulpups episode. We'll see. But that does it for series that are ending... But let's talk about that series that are going on hiatus or maybe coming back on my hiatus. So Ghost Poor Girl, unfortunately, uh, from Yukisa Psyche, is going to be going on an indefinite hiatus. Psyche has taken many hiatuses with Ghost Poor Girl uh, in the past. There was a long one last year included, but they seem to be having, you know, some health issues. And once again, those are popping up. So it's going to take another short break while he prioritizes health and recovery. And the announcement basically asks you to turn your attention to Twitter and other social media for announcements about when it'll return. There's no real scheduled plan for the re- when the return will be just yet. And Psyche, you know, also wrote a message about you know, it's become difficult work on the series to continue working on it but they'll restart serialization once they fully recovered under the guidance of medical supervision so just give it a little more time and yeah obviously we encourage and hope that manga artists prioritize their health over their work that is easily obviously the most important thing so you know I just hope that they take a good rest and they are able to recover safely and are given the time they need before they feel ready to return to work on the series I enjoy Ghost River Girl a lot, but I would rather Psyche work as a healthy artist uh, over, you know, straining themselves to continue to try and publish the series. Mm-hmm. We definitely wish them a speedy recovery. And that has also stayed true and remained true for many other manga artists who have taken breaks for the health, but... You know, even though they may take breaks for an extended period of time, you know, they still will return. You know, and even if the time has been long, that maybe the hiatus, the break they had to take has been long, you know, they still have the drive to create art and return. And we see that with an artist who has often been getting so much unfair flack about the breaks they have taken, but inevitably they will return because they just like drawing stories and their series. And that leads us to kind of the big announcement yes. of an uh, artist who has returned to the spotlight and is returning with their beloved series after a many years hiatus now. Oh my god, I am so excited. Yes, so this is not this is not a drill. This is actually happening. Yoshihiro Togashi is coming back with Hunter Hunter in Jump eventually. And we know this because Togashi started up his own Twitter account, which I'm not going to bother reading his handle because it's a bunch of letters and numbers. We will just leave a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to follow him on Twitter. So 
We should also note, he already has over 2 million followers, and he gained those in less than three days. Yeah, he is now the most followed Twitter manga artist, surpassing Koei Horikoshi's 2.1 million, which is now 2.5, so it's like, yeah, he's 2.6, so yeah, it's like, you know, uh, very beloved. And it's like, when his Twitter account popped up, people are like, is this legit? Is this real? But Yusuke Murata, like, Koshin's like, no, this is legit, guys. This is the real Tagashi. It's like, yeah. Yeah, apparently Shueisha also, like, confirmed it was him as well. Yeah, but, yeah, that drew a lot of attention. Basically, you know, as he explains in the bio, like, the Twitter is mainly him just posting about the progress of the manuscripts he's working on. So, it's, like, first post, it's, like, kind of a posting of, like, the bottom end of a manuscript page with uh, the number six on it. And in the tweet, he said, like, four more episodes of time being. And so, there's a lot of speculation. It's like, oh, does this number mean that he's finished six? Uh, chapters and he's working on four more but as the days have continued and the numbers have climbed it became clear that no it, these are the number of pages in the chapters that he's working on so he's making 16 page chapters and so he has been posting his progress on the completion of each page well I guess like they're more than 16 because they've come climbed to 19 which makes sense most chapters are 19 but like in the memo sheet that he presented it was like, you know, he, I think eventually, cause people were thinking, oh, he was making this many chapters and he's doing like one a day. And so he posted like the number next to a memo pad to say like, no, no, these are like pages in a, in a chapter. Yeah. So I think that his tweet, the way that, you know, I've heard it described is that it could mean that, you know, he's working on four more chapters. So that could mean that he's already done a certain amount of chapters. He's already finished a certain amount of chapters and he's working on the remaining four, which could track with what he had previously said back when Hunter Hunter took its hiatus in 2018, that he had like the next 10 chapters planned out and boarded. So it could be that, yeah, I mean, you know, Hunter Hunter, when it's uh, returned to the last couple stretches, has come back and back just of 10 chapters. So it could be that, you know, he has completed six of those planned chapters and is now working on the remaining four of these. And that's what he's posting updates on. Regardless, by posting, you know, his progress on these pages he's drawing, he's letting uh, his audience, his readers know that, yeah, he's he's working on the series, you know, just a little bit every day. He's making some progress and eventually these pages will be completed and eventually uh, you can expect the series to return to Shonen Jump at some point in the future. This dude literally posted a picture of a scribbly, out-of-focus tree, and it got, like, hundreds and thousands of retweets. Yeah. <laughs> All his tweets uh, have, like, hundreds of thousands of likes and retweets. They are insane. It's insane how beloved uh, Takashi is, how excited the fans are for the return, and his following is just so massive <laughs> that the fact that he, you know, immediately, within days, became the most followed twitter manga artist is so impressive it just goes to show you how dedicated how fervent the hunter hunter fan base is i mean that first tweet has over a million likes that is one point five million likes so God it's like damn. It, it is insane it is really impressive but much well deserved for a career as story to Tagashi with how beloved a serious hunter hunter is mm -hmm. now what i'm wondering is because at the time of this recording 
you can't read any of Togashi's stuff on, like, say, the Shonen Jump app. I mean, obviously his stuff is, like, available for, like, digital purchase, but, like, you can't read Yu Yu Hakusho or Hunter x Hunter on the Shonen Jump app. I have to imagine that the people at Viz are getting ready for, like, a simulpub for Hunter x Hunter. I would be so shocked if that doesn't happen by the time his next batch of chapters starts running in Jump. Hopefully they work it out. I hope Whatever so. Whatever has kept... Those series from being a part of the Walt as of now. Hopefully they can negotiate with Tagashi to do simulpubs for Hunter x Hunter when it returns and also to add those series to the Walt finally. And it's interesting because before, you know, Viz moved everything to be the current model of like the new chapters are just posted on the website. Back when they were testing out like a Shonen Jump free section with Stella Digital Magazine, Hunter x Hunter was one of those series that was offered, you know, with free daily chapters. So, you know, but those were of course only available for a limited time and chapters would be removed after a while, you know, so it, it was isn't the same thing as like having the Walt model of like you know with the subscription like now a uh, customer can like read all of the series uh, for just a couple bucks a month so but it's it's interesting because it was made available in the Walt model in some capacity before Hunter x Hunter I'm, I'm curious why Takashi has refrained or what is keeping the series from being included there now in terms of rights issues or whatever negotiations there are. So, yeah, I'm, I hope that they can work that out because it would be a shame to not be able to read new Hunter chapters uh, simulpubs when the series does return. I'm also wondering if maybe part of the reason they haven't added Hunter x Hunter to the vault yet is maybe because they're, they were waiting for an opportunity for when Togashi came back with new chapters so that way they could also roll out the backlog and be like, hey, Hunter x Hunter's back. You should read the rest of the series to catch up to these new chapters coming out or something. That's an odd long-term strategy for them to play and <laughs> wouldn't entirely explain why Yu Yu Hakusho has not been made available. In the yeah, vault for sure. That's true. I don't know, but all, all I'm saying is I, I hope we get these simulpubbed on the vault. I'm going to be really sad if we don't because, man, I'm not saying I would read them, but like, you know, I've tried reading fan scanlations of Hunter x Hunter before, and they're they're always bad. They're just always bad, and they're always terribly translated. Like we, this is a series that needs to be translated officially so badly. <laughs> yeah, they don't. The fan translations, from my experience, have focused too much on over-explaining and being wordy, rather than focusing on the clarity of what the text is actually saying and trying to communicate that just as cleanly and to the point as possible. They get a little more up in their heads with, like, overriding it. It's also probably because of those translations that a possible non-significant uh, portion of the fan base just thinks that Illumi and Hisoka are married or whatever. Yeah, they get stuff wrong like that too, so. Um, but hey, Hunter Hunter coming back. I honestly, it had been so long since the last batch of chapters. I genuinely started to think that Togashi wasn't going to come back. And as sad as I would have been about that, I was prepared to accept that. But I'm I'm glad that he's able to find the time and energy to like do more Hunter Hunter. Yeah, the time of the hiatus has been longer and shorter than I thought because I was like, oh, it's been like what 2016, but no, it was only 2018. But the last chapter was published, but that still was three and a half years ago at this point. Yeah, so it's, it's a long time, and you know maybe it'll return right when the hiatus turns four. So <laughs> maybe we can expect it this fall. 
which I think is fairly realistic if what his progress uh, is indicating, you know, seems to prove true. But yeah. God, I can't wait to read more Hunter Hunter. <laughs> yeah, it left off on a very tantalizing big cliffhanger, so I'm, I'm definitely keen to have that followed up on. Oh, yeah. Um, but I think that's about it for serialization news. Indeed. Now we can move on to licensing news, starting off with a lot of uh, service additions, like Overdrive has added a bunch of MediaDo content. And this means that, you know, schools and libraries have access to a bunch of MediaDo titles, which is good. Like, you know, Overdrive is a great service for being able to access digital books, uh, rent them out from libraries. So it's good to have titles from there. Also offered alongside, you know, a lot of these titles as well. But yeah, so it's good that uh, another publisher's titles are now available for people who use Overdrive and their library services to rent out. Now, speaking of series that, you know, are going to be returning in some form, uh, Berserk will be shipping the 41st and potentially final volume in North America in November. Dark Horse will be publishing it this November on uh, November 9th in comic stores and in bookstores on November 22nd. And the release will also have a two-sided color poster insert. And this, of course, is the volume that has been released posthumously of Beerus Passing. And we don't know still what Hakusensha's plans for what they're going to do with Berserk and how Studio Gaga, what their plans for Berserk and its future is going to be still going forward. There has not been any more further confirmation at this time. So potentially this will be like the, the last volume. At the very least, it is certainly the final volume that will feature the chapters that Miura himself had drawn right up until the moment he passed away. So it is a very bittersweet thing. Something that certainly I'm looking forward to reading these chapters in English, uh, finally. And, you know, officially finally. And it's like, yeah, it's, uh, it's gonna be a sad thing to read, but also a sense of closure too. Mm -hmm. Now, to return to kind of digital, uh, services and availability, Comic Key has launched a mobile app and they are available on iOS and Android devices. And a lot of their titles from Square Enix are available on the app. Not all of their titles uh, were available at launch and are not available still. But, you know, a lot of their bigger ones, like My Acre Sampler, the Ice Cannon, Cool Female Cali, Rustier Bisco and stuff, are available on there. And the app allows you to access 60 chapters every day per series. And you're also meant to purchase your chapters, including bulk purchases. Uh, you can get a daily pass, access one free chapter per series per day. And you have an option to read the manga in the catalog for you by watching ads. So we'll play around with the app a bit uh, when I launched, which was, you know, a little while ago at this point. But it's fairly decent, but uh, definitely something to explore further. And yeah, it has a pretty standard kind of reading experience compared to other apps, I would say, other manga reading apps. In addition, they also uh, licensed a new series recently and made a development service called Starting Today for Childhood Friends by Midori Obia, which is a, you know, it's another one of those kind of like teasing, classmate kind of stories. And around comes, you know, this kid got a childhood friend and, you know, they form a friendship with their next door neighbor. And, you know, that's their everyday story. It's, it's very much in that vein of a Nagatoro or Uzaki, you know. But, you know, it is fairly cute in terms of art style and stuff. So I think uh, if you enjoy that genre, this is another charming title to add to that repertoire. 
They also have added a few other titles, including Yukiya Kamikawa and Goro Goro Mikan's Princess of Blue Roses. And they have uh, Rodrigo Alvarez's Midnight Dogs, Aji's Unleash, and Angusia and Maisie's Evenly Matched Love. Princess of Blue Roses. I don't have a series for the others. Princess of Blue Roses is about you know, t- a girl who like wakes up uh, to find that time reverses herself. She's seven years old again, and she's thinking about her future and is traumatized because her first marriage to uh, King had been like a cold and happy one. And each time she tried to get closer to him, she had faced her rejection. And then another girl from the dimension had only increased his hostility towards her. And then everyone, you know, talked badly behind her back. And, uh, you know, she was given the nickname of Princess Bloses uh, after the flower that symbolizes unattainable wishes. So she's afraid of being sentenced to death by her own husband and terrified when she's once again reunited with him as a kid. So she's trying to undo meeting the same fate and, you know, have a better life in the second chance. So it's kind of in this genre of like, you know, villainous reincarnation stories. Is that like this time, you know, it's set in the same world, this character, like the, the actual, her opponent is like the, her rival is rather is the character who would be, you know, normally like Isekai to be the heroine in the situation. But she is like actually just the character from the world. Like she is not like, you know, a player from the real world who is now in the story now as the villainess. So she's just the villainess and actually just, you know, getting a second chance to redo her life. So I think that's an interesting wrinkle and angle to take with it. So definitely a curious title. Definitely one to check out if you're interested in checking out some new titles over on Comic Key. But Comic Key is not the only one who is doing their own exclusive titles on their app and service because Oski is also getting into licensing their own manga and some publishing their own manga. And they're starting with Hikaru in the Light by My Matsuda. And this title by the time you're listening to this, we'll have its first chapter uh, released, and new chapters are going to come out, like, every week, starting from the 13th and every Monday onward, until Oski catches up with the Japanese serialization, which should be fairly quickly, because it runs in manga action and started publication in 2021. So, yeah, it should catch up to the Japanese release pretty quickly. And yeah, so the story about this is about a girl who loves seeing like oldies in her family's bathhouse, but her best friend, you know, with a former idol, she invites her to try for an individual like idol survival camp together. And it puts her talents to the test. And can she outshine the competition in this idol camp and make her safe food or is she gonna fall flat? And so this is like kind of her story of, you know, kind of becoming a rising star. It's a story about chasing her dreams. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to this one I preview like the first chapter and it's really interesting I like the characters I like the art a lot and you know we actually have been given uh, a great opportunity to read the first couple chapters of the series and we'll be able to talk about them on our next Simulpubs episode so we'll give you a full review of like the first volumes work of the series and I'm very much looking forward to talking about it and I'm very excited that Asuki is licensing and Simulpubbing their own manga on their service I think that's a great move not just to get more titles available uh, over here, but also to make their service have, you know, even more offerings on it that really sets them apart from the other manga in the arc on the market. And, you know, it becomes a big draw to them. 
Uh, besides the fact that they also offer and are so far like kind of the only app that offers like a lot of indie publisher titles like books from Glacier Bay and Star Folks, which speaking of, Tasi is also going to be adding One Pink Rain Falls 2 to their service uh, in the next couple of weeks too, which I'm very much looking forward to reading after really enjoying the first issue of that. So yeah, I am really, really looking forward to seeing Asuki continue to license and host really Really interesting new manga and titles on their surface. I'm definitely looking forward to uh, checking out Hikaru in the light on our next uh, episode when we cover Simul Pubs. And uh, just ahead of time, thank you to Azuki for sending us a few chapters ahead of time to talk about. Yeah. And also, it's probably worth mentioning that uh, they are holding a survey right now for uh, licensing requests. So we'll leave a link in the show notes for that for uh, anybody who wants to let them know like what manga you want to read on their surface. Yeah, let them know. And maybe one of your wish list series that you've been hoping to read in English in an official capacity will be licensed by them and host an Oscape, which I think would be really awesome. Mm-hmm. Speaking of more apps and stuff added to apps, the Inker app has added the Muv Love series, both Muv Love and Muv Love Alternative. So all 16 volumes of that are available for free for Inker Extra users, and other users are available to access the first five chapters of the series for free. So if you're a fan of the Muv Love franchise, Inker is the place to go to check out that series. But also, you know, they've also added Kananchi Simul Pubs to their service too. So if that's another draw for you and you are not already subscribed to Ozki or Grunjirol or wherever else Kananchi Simul Pubs are hosted, now you can also read them on Inker as well. And of course, the Kananchi Simul Pub lineup includes stuff like Wave, Listen to Me, Power Captor Sakura, Eden Zero, Two Year Eternity, Space Brothers, Stronger Love Frontier, and a host of others, uh, 14 in total. And uh, speaking of Kanancha digital releases... Yeah, uh, I'll just mention this one real quick because this was actually a title we talked about on our second installment of uh, History of Manga Magazines over at uh, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, specifically, our shoujo episode where we talked about a bunch of different shoujo magazines. Uh, this was this was a series I looked up while we were recording that podcast and found, uh, you know, at the time it wasn't available digitally, which is unfortunate because this series is 36 volumes. And I, I complained about it on that episode. And I guess Kodansha heard that episode of the podcast somehow because uh, now all 36 volumes of The Wallflower uh, from Tomoko Hayakawa is available basically where wherever you could buy Kodansha manga. And uh, that's pretty cool. You could just buy all of it digitally, which is really cool. I, I, I think more long series definitely deserve digital releases because, hey, not all of us have room for 36 volumes of manga, you know? So this is pretty cool. Indeed it is. It's great to see more longer titles be added to digital backlog catalogs just for easy reading. It's also great that now audiobooks are being added to a lot of uh, digital services, primarily, you know, audiobooks of light novels, and especially from Yen Press and their Yen on uh, audio novel lineup. And they've added a bunch of their audiobooks to Book Walker Global. And this includes, you know, a bunch of audiobooks from Sword Art Online and Overlord, Saga Tony of the Evil, Spice and Will, Summon Spider So What, and Solo Leveling. So I've been keen to check those out. You use Book Walker Global, you can purchase them and listen to them on there. Which, yeah, I think that's pretty cool. And also pretty cool is, you know, this is a title we mentioned before that had been licensed, but Yokoyama Yuichi's A Plaza is going to be published soon 
and uh, they've set up, uh, Living Line Books has set up a Kickstarter to fund the publishing of the book. And it has reached its goal already, its goal to be funded and published. But if you want the book and if you want to support the publishing of it, definitely check out the Kickstarter. It's pretty a no-frills Kickstarter. You know, you will pledge for the book and you get the book, basically. Uh, you can get, like, a deluxe edition of one tier that, you know, comes with, like, a... A bookmark and sign and signed by Yokoyami Uchi themselves, and then of course there are like retailer tiers for it as well. But yeah, I mean, you know, Yokoyami Uchi is a really interesting kind of indie artist, and you you can see just from the sample pages on the Kickstarter that the artist is super abstract and super focused on motion, focused on shapes. It's you know very much a visual narrative type book more so than you know just a book about like traditional narrative storytelling but it's like super cool and i'm definitely have i'm sorry i'm really keen and excited to read it and yeah if you are also keen to take a look at it and you know check out uh, another work of Yokami Uichi and see an example of his abstract manga his neo manga definitely check this out definitely uh, give this support and get the book and i think that runs us right up to our talk of all the licenses that have been, you know, announced in the past two months. And of course, there were so many that we have each compiled, once again, our own individual list of 10 that we want to spotlight. And so, whichever one of us wants to go first with those, uh, I guess we will get right to them. Um, I can go ahead with my list first, uh, if that's okay. Mm-hmm. Go right ahead. All right, so I'm going to start off with some Kodansha titles. Uh, they, they they licensed a lot of interesting stuff in particular, starting with The Shadows of Who We Once Were by Yai Utsumi. Uh, that is actually already out digitally by the time you're listening to this, in which Nezu was looking forward to his elementary school reunion. After all, his class was united by unbreakable bonds, but when his former classmate Mikio reveals that his reunion is a very real matter of life and death, suddenly Nezu finds those bonds to be put to the test. And so I'm assuming this is going to end up being like a like a death game kind of thing involving all these people going to their elementary school reunion. So, you know, it's it's an easy sell for me, I guess, like death games inherently. I know maybe ever since, like, I guess when Squid Game, you know, blew up and people started watching it all over the place, you know, maybe I don't know. I, I'm actually really interested in like now that I'm like thinking about it, I'm interested in seeing like how long people are going to like be into like death game type stuff because I, I really feel like they've kind of like blown up ever since then i think they've always been popular but definitely i think we're going to see a renaissance of them being pushed to the forefront uh thanks to squid game no for sure but um just for me in particular you know it's it's an easy sell for me because death game premises are like inherently usually interesting which is why i think people really kind of gravitate towards them and you know this one isn't nece doesn't necessarily seem like you know wholly original so far just from the premise but you know like it, it could be cool and interesting that's that's assuming that this is a death game type manga i guess we don't really know that for sure but uh that's just kind of what i'm gauging from the premise so far and you know what it, it sounds like it could be a pretty fun time I would definitely check it out. Uh, next up from Kodansha, I want to highlight Burn the House Down from Moyashi Fujisawa. Uh, that'll be coming out on June 28th digitally, in which Shizuka Yamauchi, age 25, housekeeper, 
and Makiko Mitarai, age 46, amateur model and perfect housewife. Though they are strangers on the outside, the two share a past. Shizuka feels the needs to set things right to bring her mother justice, uh, but Makiko has secrets of her own, and Shizuka will need to tread carefully if she's to get to the bottom of it all without getting burned. So I, what I like about this synopsis and the way it's written is that it gives you just enough to like really hook you in, but not like enough to like totally fill you in on what's going on. And I really love it when you write like a synopsis out like that. It like immediately hooks me. And I think that's the biggest reason why uh, this seemed uh, so interesting to me. So I'll, uh, I'll definitely be checking this out. Uh, next up, I want to highlight When a Cat Faces West from Yuki Urushibara. In case you don't know, Urushibara is the author of Mushishi. So, you know, for those of you who are big Mushishi fans, you might want to check this out. I believe this is already out uh, by the time you're listening to this. Yeah. And uh, basically, just to get into the premise, uh, flow is the phenomenon that occurs when matter falls out of balance and changes form, flow creates oddities big and small that could be disruptive or delightful in equal measure, and it's up to flow disposal departments and independent contractors to shepherd the flow back to its natural form. For Chima Kondo, a 35-year-old woman stuck in the body of a 12-year-old thanks to the effects of flow, understanding how flow works and how to disperse it has become critical. But when she joins flow disposal contractors Hirota and Shacho of Hiroto Flow Inc., she finds that there's more to flow than she once knew and plenty more to find out. So yeah, this definitely, like if you couldn't tell this is from the author Mushishi, I think the very premise of this sounds very similar to Mushishi, where it's like, you, you have these characters whose job it is to specifically like seek out this like phenomena and basically tackle the effects yeah, of it. Yeah, it's like the spiritual harmony between yeah. humans and nature. Um, so I, it, it's definitely very similar in terms of that idea. And hey, you know what? I, I have a very weird like relationship with Mushishi because it's one of those series that like I recognize that it's good, but I just don't like it as much as like other people do. Like I recognize it's good, but like I don't know. It's it's Mushishi's just always been a really hard series for me to get into. Mushishi is a very atmospheric show that is like kind of about like dwelling in the story in the vibe of it so maybe i understand that it's not necessarily it's just something that you clicked with i really appreciate mushishi a lot uh, i was a big fan of it i think the anime especially uh, is able to take the mangas to the auditory quality and of course the visual values adding color to it just making it an even more immersive experience and just so absorbing uh, but yeah, I, I'm really excited. Another one of Urushibara's works has been licensed. I'm definitely keen to dig more into it. And yeah, it's it definitely feels like kind of a, a modernized version of Mushishi in several respects in terms of setting, in terms of uh, characters. So yeah, really interested to see. It's definitely dealing with similar spiritual themes, yeah. uh, but very much like kind of a different approach to it in terms of tone setting character so yeah very very keen to check it out didn't compare no for sure i mean despite my very like i guess mixed feelings on mushishi in particular i do like it enough to where like uh i'll totally check out more of urushibara's stuff like i i really love their art and i do think mushishi is just like illustrated very very beautifully and I, I I love the way it looks in particular. That's probably that's probably like my favorite thing about it in particular. So I'm definitely looking uh, forward to more of this person's work. Uh, and then last but not least from Kodansha, I want to highlight the Rokudo Rounds from Serena Oda. 
and uh, that is already out by the time you're listening to this, uh, in which N has no prospects as a child of the slums. He ekes out a living by selling the scrap cyborg augmentations he scavenges to anyone who will buy, but when he's forced to go through some unethical experimentation, he transforms, making him eligible to become a fighter in the only thing that matters in this bleak world, the Rokudo Tournament. So, again, another not simple premise, but one that, like, I feel like I've seen, like, from other manga before. And maybe, Lum, you could probably, you probably know this better than I do, maybe. But th- this kind of reminded me of, um, what's it called? Le- Levis? Is that how you pronounce that? Levis? I think so. Isn't that series about a guy, like, who boxes with, like, a robot arm or something? Or, or am I totally misremembering that? Uh, Vlord was the one who really liked that series. Uh, yeah, that was Levius, and yes, it was a, a series that was like about metal boxing, which is say like boxing with robot M, which is not you know it's very similar to Megalobox in, in concept. Fair, yeah. This uh, predated it in terms of like being a concept. So yeah, there are similarities for sure. Mm-hmm. Again, not not like super original. I've seen this kind of thing from like other stuff, but. You know, if it works, it works. It captured my interest enough to where I would check it out if I saw it. Uh, but that's really about it for Kodansha. I want to move on to some stuff from Yen Press, starting with Touring After the Apocalypse from Saike Saito. Uh, this is a series that in the synopsis says that uh, basically people who like Girls Last Tour in particular will uh, will enjoy this series because it is also about two girls who basically kind of explore the, the empty ruins of Japan after the apocalypse. And that's kind of the basic premise, which, uh, you know, I've only seen like a little bit of Girls Last Tour, but like, I weirdly do like the idea of like a sort of Iyashike sort of like, you know, just exploring the world after the apocalypse kind of thing. It, it's kind of part of the reason why I like Yokohama Shopping Log in particular. You know, like I just I just like that idea for a story. I just think that's a very interesting concept, you know, so that, that's part of the reason why I put this on my list is because uh, I just really like that idea for a story. Yeah, and I mean, the premise is very similar as the description implies to Girls Last Tour, so I really enjoyed that series and I think that, yeah, I think I'd vibe with this one, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, I want to highlight the gay who turned kaiju from Kazuki Miramoto, in which bullied for being gay, teenager Takashi Arashiro wishes he could just be somebody else. But who could predict he'd morph into a giant-headed sci-fi creature? Uh, Takashi's tumultuous emotions become the catalyst for personal and social exploration of the LGBTQ experience in this quirky, profound manga from prolific BL author Kazuki Miramoto. And yeah, I think uh, this is definitely one that caught my eye. You know, I I think through doing this podcast, I've really grown to appreciate LGBTQ manga in general. And so, yeah, I don't know. This this just sounds really interesting. And I'm, I'm really interested in seeing like what kind of like themes and ideas like we can explore through this premise. Yeah, it's a good metaphor that we've seen applied in other titles contexts to a similar feelings, mainly like, you know, puberty, growing up kind of stuff. You know, we see it in, recently with like the movie Turning Red. Uh, as far as kai- other examples of people turning into kaiju as, uh, as a metaphor for growing up, there's Kaiju Girl Carmelise, 
Uh, so this is very similar to that, but more about the queer experience and growing into those feelings. So yeah, I'm definitely keen to check this one out because I like those kind of stories. And this sounds like a really charming one of those as well. The turning red comparison, like just unlocks something in me and it's like, oh, okay, I now I can't unsee it. That That's that's actually a pretty apt comparison. Especially when her mom is like a giant <laughs> red panda kaiju at the end of the movie. Oh, yeah. And then I guess uh, the last title I want to highlight from Yen Press is actually from their new like Korean content imprint with uh, Ize Press. Uh, they're going to be releasing a bunch of different like Korean comics and webtoons through this imprint, which I think is really cool. People are definitely hungry for that kind of thing right now. The one I really want to highlight, though, is uh, The Boxer from JH. This, along with basically all the other titles they've announced recently, are going to be coming out this fall. Just to read the premise here, uh, he doesn't have the same hunger for superiority that drives every human being. The enigmatic you lives his life without joy or purpose. All aspects of the young man are a mystery to those around him, save for his supernatural athletic abilities. Yu has rhythm, grace, and power on the level of the top pound-for-pound fighters, and his potential is too much for the legendary Coach K to ignore. Taking the young prodigy under his wing, the two shock the world of boxing fight by fight as Coach K attempts to make you the greatest of all time. But what exactly compels you to keep entering the ring? So this is already a very like Ashino Joe type of premise here, and I'm, I'm really all about it. And I just think this sounds really cool. Again, another like simple premise that like I've seen done before. But hey, if it works, it works. And it's, it's the kind of thing that catches my eye. And then uh, that's really about it from Yen Press, but uh, I do want to highlight a title from uh, apparently another new manga publisher from Vast Visual, which apparently like has released like a few titles already that I'm I'm assuming people like just recently found out about, uh, judging from this ANN article. Yeah, they kind of fell under the radar because they didn't really release like a press release from what I could tell. So like people just discovered, oh, these books are being published and aren't just out here. So like, you know, even the ANN post was like a few months out of few weeks out of like, oh, these books have been made available digitally for a while now. So they just kinda popped up Silly and Blue, which is kind of uh, surprising because the titles they have here, uh, you think would turn some heads. Especially the title from um from the author of uh, Dragon Maid in particular. <laughs> Yeah, Kokyo Shinja, which, yeah, it's on my list, so we'll talk about that. But, I mean, talk about the other one, because both of these titles are pretty interesting. Yeah, the one I'm going to highlight is Tokyo Interstellar Immigration from Mato Guchimoto. And uh, like we mentioned, this is already out, available print and in digital, in which there's aliens about lurking just out of plain sight. Most of them are regular folks, but some, some are criminal. Enter Interstellar Immigration, Tokyo's finest cosmic border patrol team. Uh, They bust their asses on the daily to keep planet Earth safe. Thus, the spotlight falls upon the story of two high school girls, Lane and Anne, as they kick ass, hunt down illegal aliens, and look great doing it. Buckle up for bombastic sci-fi action with a twist. And yeah, I think uh, even before I got to the premise, the the cover for this one really caught my eye because like, for some reason, I'm really digging the character designs for this series so far. Like, it, it, it looks really appealing to me. And just in general, like this, this sounds like it could be pretty like fun and action packed, you know, kind of. I don't know why I thought Dirty Pair, because I don't know if this series has any real like similarities other than two badass girls who do a lot of fights. Yeah, two badass girls. Uh, well, I guess they don't. Well, they're based in Tokyo. I don't know if they like travel outside of the planet Earth to, you know. Probably not. Bounty hunt and stuff like that, like the Dirty Pair. 
But uh, yeah, I can see the comparisons. But yeah, I do also like kind of the you know kind of wild designs of like you know one of the characters like little mouth scar and stuff like that. So. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, I'm very interested in seeing like what vast visual will pick up in the future because I I'm just so surprised that like this really went under the radar. Like I I hope more of their titles get more press because I'm sure they'll I'm sure they'll license like even more interesting stuff in the future. Yeah, I mean, from what I uh, have seen and understand, like quality of their books can be a little inconsistent. Like they're not unprofessional, but like volume two of Kokush uh, Junja series. Um, Paranoia Cage had some formatting issues. Okay. Of, like and some weird things going on with parts of the text balloons being obscured. So it's it's kind of inconsistent. So I don't know. This probably is like another company that kind of uh, is licensing a bunch of titles, maybe on the quick and kind of like using fast localization uh, methods. But you know, I'm still curious to see what they'll license and what to publish because i mean they again got a title from a big name author and his other title is really interesting too i would be surprised that another publisher wouldn't be interested in so yeah it's gonna be interesting to see what they pick up and what they publish well i'm assuming they like just started out pretty recently so hopefully they'll they'll get better uh, but I guess the last two titles I'm going to mention are from uh, J Novel Club. Uh, the first one I'm going to mention is Oversummoned, Overpowered, and Over It, uh, both the light novel and the manga. Uh, the manga uh, being drawn by uh, Mukojima Kamome, with the original work credited to Saitosa, uh, with illustrations from Sugutoku. And um, I picked this one because I just have to read the premise for this character because uh, it's pretty great. So I just, I just got to get in character here. Okay, okay. <clears throat> All right. Name's Inori Takafuji. I'm not really much of a go-getter if you catch my drift. Sleep's more my style. But getting summoned to another world kind of messed things up. Bit hard to chill when you've got a king in your face telling you there's a bad guy you've got to go slay or whatever, you know? Plot twist, though. It's actually not so bad, you know? Uh, get getting the hero treatment sounds pretty nice, right? But then it happens again! Some other clowns summon me, I get my obligatory superpower, and I and off I go. And sure, you know, that's fine. It happens. Sometimes you get isekai to the wrong place. But then it happens again! Someone else summons me, I get another superpower, and then I'm somewhere totally new. Repeat ad nauseum. Alright, goddess, where to next? And let me just say this, the next time I get summoned better be my last because I am so over this. And that's what really grinds my gears now. Um, but yeah, I I mostly wanted to highlight this title because I just I just love how in character the premise is, and I like the idea of someone who is uh, just tired of as tired of isekai as the rest of us are. No, um, I don't know. I I, th I think this guy might be my spirit animal. Yeah, I hope uh, the book itself has the same kind of wit and sarcastic sass I as hope so. this copy, <laughs> uh, same energy as the synopsis Jane novels provided and your reading of it i could totally see uh bob o'reilly play with it. yep that's me this guy's going off on his ranch uh, you're probably wondering what i'm doing here <laughs> oh that's so good um so yeah i'd, 
I'd check this out. Freeze frame right when he <laughs> gets hit by the truck or whatever happens. We get it again in the series. Oh, man. Um, he gets summoned by a clown, so maybe he gets hit over the head and he bludgeoned by a clown, and that's how he gets his guy reincarnated. I would love it if there if there's like a moment in in the series where like he just he just keeps like getting isekai because like he keeps getting like killed or whatever. I would I would love that so much. I feel like that has to happen at some point. Um, but here, so the last title I'm going to mention uh, again from J Novel Club is The Wind That Reaches the Ends of the World, uh, a manga created by Sukasa Hazumi, in which a pair of mysterious and astute travelers uh, ride their spryverns. I think that's how you pronounce that uh, to all corners of this fantasy world. By order of the Sanctum, an international peacekeeping agency, Rawl and Jillet cross many nations to edit the pamphlet, a collection of regional myths and stories. Incredible discoveries await them at every destination, along with clues that may lead them toward the answer to their true quest. Dive into a sprawling high fantasy adventure full of striking locations, mesmerizing creatures, and intriguing local legends. So... A pretty basic, like, adventure story from what it sounds like, but hey, you know what? The synopsis for this is written in a way that, like, I think really kind of captures my attention and, like, makes me interested in just, like, exploring a whole other new world. Like, I'd at least check out the first volume of this, see how it shakes out, and yeah, I, I just I just want to go adventuring after reading that, you know? Yeah, I think what really intrigues me about the series is the cover, just showing off all these cool different, you know, dragons and monster creatures, you know. So I think it lives up the premise of like, oh, exploring the world and discovering like all sorts of mesmerizing creatures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely think that the artist is very imaginative and good at designing these. So I definitely would like to check it out and see what kind of cool uh, dragon monster creatures that they come up with it, that populate this world uh, that these characters discover on their adventures. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really about it for my list of licenses, Lum, if you want to go ahead and uh, just talk about the licenses that stood out to you. Yeah, Kodansha definitely had a lot of licenses that they announced recently. And of course, us being uh, one behind, some of these how we come out. Yep. And that <laughs> goes for the first title that I am going to mention, The Untouchable Midori-kun by Toyo Toyota. This has been out since May 17th. And it's a interesting spin on like kind of a meet up with a childhood friend and former romance's adult story. So like the premise is that the protagonist Misaki doesn't recognize that her cute new neighbor is her old friend from school that is no longer the awkward kid that she remembers but is the leader of Japan's hottest new idol group but he finds out that she is an adult film actress and he can't be seen with her if he's to reserve his squeaky clean idol image but can the chemistry between them be so easily erased and it promises to be a six positive sweet idol rom-com fans of Tokyo Tabarepa Girls and Ex Enthusiasts and I really enjoyed both of those series. And from all the buzz that I've been hearing about it from folks who've been checking it out, a lot of folks really enjoy this series. So I think it's like a very nice, fun premise for a rom-com to have like, you know, someone who's like an idol and has to keep this, you know, pure image. And another person who's in, you know, the adult film porn industry. So it's like, oh, these are kind of star-crossed people from different polar opposite almost industries in a way. And how can they form a relationship with the other, keep it under wraps, keep them from getting in trouble uh, by putting being in the public spotlight. So I think that's a, a very fun spin on it. So definitely you can give this a proper read and check it out more. 
And the next title from Nancha that I want to mention is A Joy by Etsuko, which is about a 26-year-old manga artist, a shoujo manga artist, whose assistant is a mangaka in his own right, but he finds out that his assistant is gay and trying for a, a loop because what else about him does he not know? And so he's asked to draw BL, and so he tries to pry into his gay assistant's experiences for inspiration, but then he's ultimately inspired by the idea of unrequited love for him but can he keep his own feelings out of the mix so i think this is a cute bl premise you know like two mangaka uh basically working closely together and <laughs> the lead artist he's like starting to get into the world of bl and he's looking to his you know gay friend for inspiration but then he realized oh maybe i might also be queer as well and i also have feelings for my assistant and my friend here so i think that's a story with a lot of potential as far as some very interesting feelings and yeah, I also like the cover a lot. I like the aesthetic of a lot of the use of color. So very much interested in checking this out further. Uh, speaking about artists, you know, the next title I want to mention is Old Spot on Artist and Nico Color Canvas by Now Shikita. This is going to be out on June 21st. And Joy by Exco is going to be out on June 7th, as I had mentioned. So it'll be out by the time you have been listening to this. But yeah, so Nico Color Canvas is about uh, the eponymous protagonist, Nico, who is a very free-spirited uh, girl. And her she's like an instant celebrity because of that. And they're already university, but you know, one of her professors is a career making her breaking sensei and has a limited tolerance for aggressively good-natured optimism. So now she isn't phased. It's just going to mean that she's got to make her own way to stardom and she's going to enlist the help of her friends. And no matter what, you know, she's going to make an interesting college debut. So, you know, I just like the idea of like this free spirit artist and kind of going against the grain of kind of the stuffy institution and faculty and just completely uninhibited and like just, you know, being fully free to explore their art in the way that they want it to be. I like the cover a lot and just the messy, you know, paint splatter all over, including, you know, her drawing her own face, you know, it gives me a good sense of the character and the fact that she's just so free-spirited, free-willed like that. So I, yeah, I think that this has a very, very endearing premise that is very appealing to me. And next, I want to mention A Serenade for Pretend Lovers by Tochika Nakome. This will also be out on June 21st. And this one is about a woman, Akari, who works at a TV station and was on the job when she happens to see her boyfriend who happened to be cheating on her, unfortunately. And before she can really do anything about it, she's asked to manage a documentary about a musician, but he tries to shut her out. And when he does that, he, she just barges in and she just wants to do her job right. But... When he learns her name, he asks her to be his lover. And so, you know, she ha- this all happens in one long day. And it looks like it's not over yet. And it's going to get even longer. So I was interested in this one because it's about someone who works in TV, works in a TV station. They're trying to make a documentary and they end up having a kind of close, perhaps more inappropriate relationship with their subject. So that raises a lot of interesting questions. It also, you know, makes for good drama, romantic drama and stuff like that. That really caught my eye, caught my interest to see someone, a story about someone working in the field of TV and working to make a documentary and then also kind of exploring the ethics and also the messiness of getting too involved with your subject in filming a documentary and the next title i want to spotlight is from financial but it's also like a cadantia title that's exclusive on bookwalker 
And that is, I'll never send a selfie again by Kakeke. This has already been available since early May at this point. And this is a full color manga. And it is about a girl called Hamari who's uh, never been one to abandon a friend in need. But then her friend asks her for a selfie so he can use it as an art reference. And, you know, she's one to oblige, even if she finds it embarrassing. But unfortunately, you know, he continues to use that reference to draw an embarrassing piece of art and continues to want her help. And she just... Can't say no, even though the poses are getting a little suggestive. So it just seems like kind of a fun, like, etchy uh, rom-com comedy. Again, focusing on art and modeling for art. And I think it's interesting that it's a full-color series. It's interesting that it's a condensed licensed title that is being exclusively published on Bookwalker. So I think that was a factor, a bevy of reasons uh, that made it catch my eye and make me want to really read and check out this series. It's got a lot of interesting stuff to it. So next I have a title from Jane L. Club that I wanted to highlight. And that is The Skull Dragon's Precious Daughter from Ichi Yuji Shiro. This series takes place in a forest called the Forest of Scraps. You know, a place where old men and things are discarded. And there lives an old dragon who is sleeping away his final days until an event trial suddenly appears before him. And it's a tiny little girl, just five years old, who has somehow endured the many dangers that surround them in the forest. And in an act of pity, the dragon decides to raise her as his own. But, you know, his time is running out. And, you know, after five years they spend together, you know, he's taking his last breath and he's leaving his precious daughter on his own, but you know, little does he know that Eve is more capable than he realizes and the reunion and turns out to be sooner than he thinks. And so hoping to improve Eve's control over her magical abilities before his resurrected body gives out, the Skull Dragon sets out on an adventure with his reckless human daughter and who knows what kind of trouble awaits them. So it's interesting. The implication here is that Eve, the little girl, has some sort of like really strong healing magic or potentially like resurrection magic. And so that has great potential but she doesn't know how to control them. She's a child, of course. So I think that's an interesting thing. It's kind of a taking clock element of like, oh, well, this magic can prolong uh, the dragon's life, but, you know, only for so long. So there's like kind of a impending need to be able to train her and be able to get her to a new home where she can be able to hone and develop her talents more fully. But and yeah, it also sounds just, you know, relationship between the dragon and his adopted daughter is it's uh, very sweet. And so that's uh, multiple different elements of reasons, you know, that draw me to the story. That's the thing, you know, they are the, on the cover is cute. Kind of like the dragon has like kind of a skull head. It's just, you know, an interesting little design there. Or maybe like the real dragon is like kind of at the back. It's kind of interesting because you can see in the background, you know, a more giant dragon. Uh, with more flesh, but then in the foreground, it's like kind of a, a skeletal dragon. So maybe that, I think that's probably his resurrected body. Probably. And then his original body is in the background. But it's interesting. It's a good design. Both of them are good designs either way. But yeah, I think it sounds like a charming adventure series with a compelling central relationship. Now, to return to Vast Visual, I did want to highlight Paranoia Cage by Cool 
Fusion Jack as I am. Uh, a fan of their works, I like Dragon Maid quite a bit. And yeah, so Paranoia Cage is also uh, just has an interesting premise to me. So, you know, it's about an adult manga artist who's living on her own uh, and she's spending her days with her assistant, who is also a BL author. And they are in an online quest to read the ultimate adult manga. And even their new editor can't stop himself from shrinking the face of this duo's infinite lewdness. So I think this is just a fun, etchy comedy manga about making an etchy manga. And, you know, Akuku Shinjutsu works for better or worse, definitely lean on the etchy element. So I think that's an area that I'm certainly interested in. And I think that, you know, again, the premise of, like, uh, adult manga artist and a BL artist, you know, working together to create the ultimate adult manga has a lot of fun potential to it. So very, very keen to check this one out. Speaking of BL titles, you know, Tokyo Pop, Wellamore Hate Him. For some reason, they keep licensing interesting new queer manga. And that includes Love Circus by Nemui Asada. And this title is going to come out on December 6th. And it's about a run-of-the-mill office worker who racked up a huge amount of debt, helping his hostess girlfriend move away from her line of work. But when his efforts fell short, he tried to, you know, commit suicide, but found himself rescued from death by the proprietor of Low Circus, a brothel for gay men. And basically, hard truth that his girlfriend, you know, lied to him. He agrees to stay and join the employees of the brothel to work off his life debt. And, you know, he while working there, learns around his fellow clients and fellow sex workers and the goings on in Tokyo's less known nightlife. So, again, the the premise of the series, you know, it deals with some heavy subject matter, deals with an interesting setting and interesting relationships between different characters in the setting. I, and I just find this like a really interesting title i definitely am keen to read it and so yeah i definitely i'm really going to keep an eye out for this one because yeah it just sounds like a story of like kind of picking yourself up and finding yourself again and finding a new community that i can really appreciate uh, in terms of other bl really titles that i am keen to check out more fully and this one is already out is from iridori sakura is loving living vr jobless girls girls been acronymistically as g-i-r-l and guy i-r-l in brackets uh and this is about uh you know a jobless board and struggling to find a place in life guy called Ijibu, who turns to er to and lives vicariously to his you know sexy female avatar and makes new friends and in this virtual world he meets haru another man who's inspires him to follow his passions and all and after they fall head over heels in love so it's interesting it's kind of like oh the name of the series escapes me but there was a similar series about two people who you know kind of met each other and formed a relationship in a virtual world but they were kind of gender bent versions of themselves in this case what's interesting is that you know these are two you know gay men who are like kind of in this virtual world boat using female avatars so you're simultaneously having kind of a woman loves a woman relationship in the game but these two men end up having a relationship in their lives so it's, it plays with gender interesting way it plays with queer sexuality and story. it is a explicit queer title i did read through some of it and yeah there is like something explicit said in there so it is an erotic title definitely but it also has just a really fun premise and again like it does some interesting things with gender and sexuality and stuff so i really appreciate that so Definitely, I'm keen to give this one a shout out uh, if you're also intrigued by the premise. Are, are you thinking of um, MMO Junkie? Yeah, MMO Junkie is what I was thinking of. I still haven't gotten to that yet, but I, I really want to. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame that the director of the anime turned out to be like uh, anti-Semite, yeah. 
So that's a shame that kind of sours it. But the story itself, you know, is good. And it's a shame that that manga, I don't think, ever got licensed. I would like to read that manga. Same, yeah. But that was a really fun series. I really enjoyed it a lot. And so I would love to see that series one day be licensed. But also, I think this is another good cake on a similar premise that I really enjoyed reading and would really enjoy recommending. I didn't end up putting it on my list, but this was one I was actually kind of interested in, too. Mm -hmm. Next, we've got from Drawn and Quarterly. My last couple books are going to be kind of like alt indie manga. And Drawn and Quarterly is releasing a new Yoshihara Suge book called Nejishiki. This is going to come out on April 2023. A new, you know, short manga collection from Yoshihara Suge. And uh, also in addition to this news, they did mention that they were also going to be reprinting uh, their releases of their Katara manga in February with new covers. So Ooh. that's also uh, very intriguing. But of course, uh, as with previous Suge works, Ryan Holmberg will be translating this. And they've got a cool preview up for the book in the first couple of pages of it so far. And yeah, it's basically the collection, as John Corey describes it, is that it's going to be like iconic scenes from Suge's body of work. Uh, alongside some of his most beloved stories, Suge, of course, is a cornerstone of Japan's 1960s counterculture of avant-garde manga comics criticism. Uh, and the title story of Nejishiki follows an injured young man as he wanders through a village of strangers in search of emotional physical release. And other stories in collection follow a series of weary travelers who, while away, sultry nights and face menacing doppelgangers and even banal activities like afternoon strolls and governs every impulses. So the emotionally and erotically charged material in this volume uh, is going to be as shocking and vivid today as it was the years ago the promise and yeah so two guys work is very interesting the preview for uh, the story that is going to be included one of the stories that's going to be included in this book you know i really like the style and the vibe of it and so yeah i'm definitely keen to, to check this out glad that they're publishing more two guys works and again more gekiga more alt manga out and uh, i'm really want to hunt down the live action film adaptation of the nijishiki short story that apparently came out in the late 90s too apparently it was released in north america as groove so i hunt that down later because i'm also curious to see what like uh the adaptation, what it turned out to be like. But, uh, you know, speaking of alt manga and manga being translated by Ron Holmberg, uh, he's also working with Breakdown Press to release Ebisu Yoshikazu's I Wish I Was Stupid next year. And this is following off of their previous publishing of uh, Yoshikazu's Pits of Hell. And it was originally published in 1982. And this book promises to be even seedier and weirder and angstier. It's gonna outshame pits of hell. Uh, there's gonna be 13 stomach-turning, side-splitting stories from the 70s and 80s alt manga scene in bed with Japan's infamous porn rag empire. And so it's, uh, you know, a bunch of different weird eccentric stories. So, yeah, it's gonna be another interesting collection of, you know, indie alt manga. I, I think the cover is really good, really interesting. So, yeah, I just appreciate, again, the work to bring kind of these more alt indie titles out there. Definitely keen to read this side. I haven't actually read Pivots of Hell, so I definitely need to hunt that down before this as well. If this second book from Yoshikazu promises to be even bolder than the previous. 
But that does it for my licensing highlights, and a lot of great stuff from a lot of great publishers, including some new publishers popping up in the mix, so that's always cool to see. However, you'll notice that one publisher was conspicuously absent from our list, and that was by design, because as we'll talk about next, this publisher unfortunately has been in the limelight and the hot seat for various reasons. The main reason being their unfortunate reaction to the efforts of of their workforce to unionize. And we can pull back the curtain here that we are now talking about our main industry topic news today, the big news that has kind of been the thing to follow these past couple of weeks uh, and a really big move for the industry is that the workers of Seven Seas have banded together to form a union called the United Workers of Seven Seas. They're working with the Communication Workers of America and they are going to aim to unite to negotiate better working conditions for their employees and for uh, freelancers with management. So the reason for this, and they set up a website of the United Workers Associates to outline kind of all of their goals in terms of what they aim to achieve. And the main trust of it is, you know, Seven Seas as a company has grown exponentially in just the past couple of years. They had just 10 on-staff employees in 2018. Now they have over 40 staff members. They have 41 staff members as of 2022. Uh, Their sales growth has been substantial in just the past year alone. The number of books that they have moved has gone up from about 700,000 copies in 2020 20 to 1 million 590,000 copies in 2021. That's over uh, twice as many books they have sold between 2020 and 2021 for millions of dollars of value. Uh, they have uh, grown exponentially. They release like upwards of 500 books a year. Jeez. And so, you know, their staff is just a core team of these 40 people. In addition, there's not even accounting their freelancing staff of translators and letterers. It's just like their staff of editors, of proofreaders, copy editors, stuff like that. It's not even counting the letterers and translators. So they have grown as a company into just the powerhouse. They are the number one independent uh, manga company in the market right now because all the other publishers are owned by, you know, even bigger conglomerates of companies and publishers. So uh, with that comes responsibilities, you know, with that growth comes the need to properly compensate to provide benefits to their employees, which uh, as it seems, they have not there because when you look at like the goals that the union aims to achieve, it's basic stuff that a company should provide for their workers, healthcare, paid leave and pension, benefits, paid time off and vacation and holiday breaks, increased wages, reasonable workloads and no crunch, as impure appealing status, protections and benefits for freelancers, clearly defined roles and organization charts, training materials and onboarding, a robust scheduling and admin department, management training for management supervisors, and end to exclusivity and anti-freelance contracts, anti-harassment discrimination policies and processes for submitting grievances, bonus submitter gets reimbursement for costs, inter-department communication, and increased Increasing staff for overburdened departments, which is includes is not limited to the print covers design and admin teams. And you can go into even more detail reading their a list of like why they are advocating for these things and the problems that they have been facing. But basically, the the crux of it is that they have a small staff and they're overworked and they are asked to perform job roles. A lot of their staff that are outside of 
what, you know, their job descriptions should entail. Uh, they are asked to work longer hours, more hours than they are being compensated for. They are not being compensated adequately for the amount of work they're doing and for the amount of value of their work that is being brought into the company uh, by how successful the company is. And, you know, I think that has kind of led to a lot of the recent controversies we've talked about regarding Cyberseas about, like, things have been taken out of books or translated incorrectly in books. And that seems to be not by a choice by the translator, but by someone in management that, you know, there has not been proper communication about that kind of stuff that leads to kind of confusion and criticism when that book is published. Uh, we saw that with Mishiko Tensei, and I am in love with the villainess in particular. And and of course, recently we had that whole situation uh, with Dame where one of the translators, you know, was not happy with like how their translation was uh, adapted by an editor. And then they were one of three translators working on the project. They asked to go under a pen name and their pen name referred to the fact that they were not the only translator on the project. And that got a controversy. And so now they're not even credited. And like that is, was a whole situation. So it really does seem like management has uh, not really been fair to their working staff at Seven Seas, nor to their freelancing staff uh, tires. So yeah, the union I think is very much advocating for you know very basic uh, amenities that the employees of Seven Seas should have. I mean, as a company with over forty employees, Seven Seas should be legally required to offer healthcare. I mean, I don't know why they are not already, but that's something they need they are obligated to work on. But basically, you know, it's clear that these grievances have been bubbling over, boiling over for a long time because over like 80%, uh, 80% of the staff at 17 that are eligible to form the union have joined the union cause. Like 32 out of the 41 staff members are on board, have signed on board to form the union. Seven Seas, upon seeing this, could have had the choice. Management had the choice. They're like, okay, you know, it's clear that a majority of our employees want this, so we should recognize this. But instead, they have said, well, you know, this affects all our employees and not just the ones uh, that want to be a part of the union, right? So, you know, we're going to wait for the vote before we will officially recognize the union. And this is the frustrating thing is like, it's kind of a delay tactic because it's clear, like, again, like, the majority of employees want to form the union and you know forming the union does not mean that all employees are obligated to become a part of the union like the employees that don't want to join the union don't have to join the union but they also receive kind of the benefits of the union's negotiations for better work in conditions on their behalf anyway so it's you know it's a thing that evidently it should be clear that the union is going to be formed. They have like 80% of the staff on board, which is more than what they need uh, for the vote to go through to elect union. But I think what Seven Seas tactic is based on what they have done since and what we've learned that they have done since is that they have hired a union busting firm called Ogletree Deacons, which is like the second largest anti-union firm in the country. They crushed an IKEA union back in 2016. They've crushed a lot of different unions using scare tactics and creating environments hostile to organized labor. They have ties to the RNC and is, you know, been involved in a lot of shady stuff. 
And yeah, it's really, really astonishing that they would rather pay uh, a legal team, they would rather pay a union-busting firm that simply acknowledged the necessities and the demands that their employees are asking for and just acquiesce and like give them well-deserved benefits and pay raises and better working conditions that I think that the company can very easily afford with how much revenue uh, they aren't taking on how much growth they have undergone. But rather, the management is, is spending like double of what they're probably paying right now the salaries of their employees on this legal team uh, and this union busting firm, which is absurd and atrocious. And, you know, really trocheted on the CEO of Seven Seas, Jason D'Angelo, who, by his own omission in uh, previous like interviews, has said like, "Oh, he's like the main decision maker at Seven Seas. Like everyone wears a lot of different hats, but like he's the main guy who makes the decision." So it's like, dude, you really have an obligation here, a responsibility as a employer to provide adequate working conditions and benefits to the employees who make your business possible. But this is like. Uh, cling to power over their employees that is clearly evident. It's like clearly like, no, it's, this is like about just keeping control. And I, I think that's just very disappointing to see from the management deaths and disease. To put simply, this is bullshit and you should treat your workers better than this. Most certainly. I mean, it's just, we've known, we've been, we've interviewed so many of you, we talked to so many people, we know that like conditions pay for people working in the industry are, have not been super great across the board. But from what it turns out at Seven Seas, like the conditions are like even more untenable because they have had such explosive growth. You know, they make such a big deal about like their licensing Wednesdays, about like licensing multiple different titles every week and over 50 like hundreds of titles a year. And it's like, that's unsustainable to be, to publish that many books and just have your small team be able to do that. But to also pay your team just so less like freelancers who have spoken up recently in, in light of this news have talked about how seven C's pays rates that for people who've been working in this business for years now uh, lower than what they got from other publishers just starting out and that's just really unacceptable yeah for sure like they pay you know really low rates and I mean you know the union is again for on staff uh, only on staff employees are like you know legally eligible to join the union which is again like editors designers administrators and production staff but the union team is fighting for freelancers rights it is fighting for the rights of the translators and the letterers that work with them on these titles so a real coordinated effort to uplift everyone in the business and if this momentum goes through like hopefully this leads to similar movements similar unions being formed at other publishers that can also similarly improve uh, working editions the rights of of workers in the manga industry and that includes freelancers across the board and I hope to see that happen. Of course, I, we don't know how the efforts of the Union Busters is going to turn out, but I feel like with the solidarity that the people who have joined in on the Union have shown so far and the fact that they have like an overwhelming majority of the staff on board, I think that the vote to form the Union will go through, it'll get recognized uh, too sweet 
And uh, then, like, we'll see how management responds to that and whether they will acquiesce. But it's such a baffling thing that they would choose the route of, you know, bad press rather than be an industry leader in, like, just accepting the union and just, you know, making the effort to do right by the employees that make their business even possible to begin with. I mean, we talk so much about Seven Seas, you know, riding their tidal wave of manga licenses. You know, they're riding this tidal wave of success, but their freelancing team, their their staff, they are just, you know, drowning in all this work and all this overwork. And they're forming this union. It's like a life raft that they're all climbing on board. They've all built together to try and stay afloat, try and rise back up to the top. And yet, rather than lift them on board, the Seven Seas management has decided they want to try and shoot holes in it. They really want to poke holes in it, deflate it, and sink it rather than just uplift them and have everyone rise the tide together. Management would actually just rather let them drown. And that's just that's just disappointing. Yeah. So it is a disappointing, perhaps unsurprising move from Seven Seas management, but we will see. I feel like these efforts will come to pass. We are actually in an interesting and hopeful time in terms of unions being formed across industries uh, in the states right now in multiple different fields we have that especially with amazon warehouse of starbucks change efforts to unionize at these places that have been notorious for overworking and exploiting their staff and their employees uh just band together in solidarity to demand for better treatment better rights so we're seeing like a regrowth in the labor movement in the States recently. And I think that's been encouraging. And I think it's great that that is finally extending to the publishing industry, and especially the manga publishing industry and comics industry at large. I'm sure it goes without saying that until Seven Seas Management recognizes the union and recognizes their efforts that we will not be promoting any more of their uh, licenses or talking about any of their titles in particular, as far as like discussions on our podcast goes. Yeah, we will uh, abstain from mentioning uh, their new licensing announcements because if they would rather, again, management would rather try and promote their titles rather than acknowledge and actually engage with their workers and their needs, then we don't want to support them and promote them in any way. And that, of course, extends to, you know, talking about the titles, covering their titles. So, yeah, that will be on pause for as long as management refuses to simply acknowledge the union. And uh, we're just hoping for a best and quick turnaround in this. I mean, the after the vote goes through, like, it'll take probably like three weeks to a month-ish probably before, you know, negotiations goes through and any decisions are made. So we'll, this is a story that is still to fall in the long term. So in the meantime, it is best to like continue to keep up support. I think that, you know, they made a calculated decision to pause their licensing announcements for the next month so that they don't get harassed in the comments by people, you know, tweeting at them. But that doesn't mean you can't still tweet at them with like many of the hashtags that the United Workers of Seven Seas have come up with to have people show their support to petition Seven Seas to acknowledge and support the union. And those hashtags include making waves or flag means union is guys possible. Seven Seas to means reduction, which is my favorite. So definitely, you know, show your support for the union. They are continuing to post regularly. Uh, they're continuing to 
products overseas and chastise them for their decisions. And so you can continue to do the same respectfully, you know, also writing polite emails and letters helps as well. You know, don't harass necessarily, but, you know, let your voice be heard, that you stand with the employees, with the staff, people who make manga localization, make the publishing of these titles possible. And you want to see them be treated better. You want to see them be paid better. You want to see them be able to have better working conditions and be able to enjoy and do their jobs more comfortably than they are currently being allowed to with the stifling, overworked, and unfair conditions that the Seven Seas has fostered in their workplace environment. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can follow them on Twitter, by the way. That's United Workers of Seven Seas at underscore UW7S uh, for those of you who want to follow them. And we'll, we'll leave links to a lot of their stuff in the show notes as well. And I will have more uh, links for union uh, awareness and more information to uh, learn about the Seven Seas Union in the shout outs. But for now, we will move on to some of our anime news, our interest pieces. And starting off, we're going to talk about something that I was very excited about, and that is that Shin-Chan is back with a new dub. And it's on Amazon Prime, the Shin-Chan spin-off series. They finally added the second and two fourth parts of it to Amazon Prime after only the first part being made available back in 2016. Finally, they've added those other ones and those are available. But not only are those available, yes, they have a new English dub. And yeah, you can stream it all on there right now. And, you know, the dub, uh, it takes a while to get used to. It takes a while the characters to get find themselves in the the Nohara film in particular, they have like a, their line news can be a little flat at the start, but I think they eventually grow into it. Unfortunately, the first episode of the first uh, miniseries has audio singing problems that they still haven't fixed, which is a little frustrating. But the rest of the episodes, uh, from what I have seen, have been fine. So, you know, it's just frustrating that the first episode has those weird audio singing. Hopefully they can fix that. But overall, you know, I'm just glad to have more Shin Chan legal available. It was a lot of fun to just be able to revisit this. I still haven't finished all the series yet, but like we watched it with the feelings with Shinosuke with the English dub, and it was a really good time. And it's really fun. Like I had extended family over recently, and you know, growing up in India, you know, Shin Chan is very popular there. It's you know played in the daytime. It's a big family show. But they hadn't seen any of the English words yet, so it was fun recently to, like, show them. Because they also haven't seen it since they were kids, so it was fun to show them, like, some of the different English versions that have been made. The the Tello dub, the Funimation dub, and now this dub. And it's crazy, you know, technically they're, like, four different dubs of Shin-Chan. The Fu's dub is so hard to find, but comparing the three dubs that we have Shin-Chan now with... Waitello, Funimation, and now the Prime Dub. It's really interesting, you know, similarities in how they approach the characters, differences in how they approach them. And I think, you know, I was glad that my cousins agreed with me that uh, the Waitello Dub is still my favorite in terms of, like, execution and voice acting performance, but overall there's still stuff to enjoy in each one. And of course, you know, the Amazon Prime one is, like, uh, the most faithful script-wise to the original. For better or worse, again, that part of the flatness does come from uh, the script maybe being a little too literal at times. A little too faithful to this original Japanese script at times. But yeah, I just love Shin-Chan, so I'm glad that more of it is available in a legal capacity and more of it has gotten dubbed in a way that makes the series fun to revisit. And uh, it just makes me ever so hopeful that, man, 
you know, one day I, I really would love this Kodak to just uh, license, uh, rescue all the old dubs of Shin Chan, re-release those. If not, like, also just do the movies, because I would love to see those. And, you know, hey, maybe this will be the start of an effort from Amazon on their end to add more Shin Chan, and I would love to see that. So, yeah, I'm very, very happy with this. And now we'll talk about some cool new film news. There's a lot of films coming out in theaters this summer to look forward to. Starting off with something that's really exciting. If you're a Macross fan, you know, we had that Macross Plus screening, which was like an out of nowhere surprise treat last December. And now we're getting the Macross Frontier films later this month. So uh, Macross Frontier, The Fall Strongest, the first film will come out on the 16th. And the second film, Wings of Farewell, will be out on June 30th. Both of these will just be Japanese with English subtitles. But this is like the first time these have been screened in U.S. theaters, I think. Maybe the first time these have been made available legally in the U.S. in any way. So this is really, really exciting. And yeah, it just shows that, okay, maybe the Macross franchise has uh, more future in North America again. Maybe we're going to finally get more of uh, the series be released, you know, these movies theatrically. Maybe finally these leads to home video releases. Uh, it's just really, really cool to see Macross finally, you know, kind of get a resurgence, you know, in its original form. It's non-Robotech form in North America again. So very, very happy news. I'm very excited to see at least the first one here. I may be unable to see the second film because of travel plans, but I, I hope I can. I'm very, very excited. Next, we got some film releases from G-Kids to look forward to. They're going to be releasing Deer King in mid-July. It's going to have a fan preview event, as G-Kids says like to do. They have, like, a one- or two-day preview event before giving the movies wider theatrical releases. So the fan preview event will be July 13th to 14th. 13th will be the Japanese video subs, and uh, 14th will be dubs. And then the wide release will be on the 15th. And, yeah, I'm... Definitely keen to check this out. This is the first based by the medical fan series of the same name, directed by Masashi Ando, who was a character designer on Princess on so many titles like Tokyo Godfathers and Paranoia Agent, when mine was there, your name, who was the animation director of. Uh, and then he directed this film alongside uh, Masayuki Miyagi, who is known for Zam and Fuse, and uh, they did a production ID. And yeah, character designs for the film were done by Ando, and the script was written by Taku Kishimoto, who is also written for Haikyuu, Erased, and Fruits Basket. The music comes uh, from Harumi Fuki, who also composed the music for Miss Hokusai and Shimon Adventure Last Kizun. Uh, so yeah, like, this is a really cool team of folks that have come together to adapt this project. The trailer looks very stunning, the animation looks gorgeous, so very, very excited to check this out. When it comes to theaters, as I am also excited to check out Inuo, Masaki Iwasa's latest film, when it drops in theaters on August 12th. And yeah, I have been really excited for this one ever since it came out of Japan late last year. Obviously a big Yuasa fan. So yeah, this will be out for G-Kids on August 12th. So it's been a busy summer for G-Kids. We had Mikuko uh, this month, then Deer King from them next month, and now Inuo on August. So like a new film from them every month. So they've been keeping themselves busy. And they still have more plans because they've also acquired Goodbye Don Gleese, which they plan to release later this year. This new film from Atsuko Ichizuka and Madhouse. 
house, and it's of course going to be really something up. And yeah, this this is a pretty fast turnaround for them because this film just released last February, and uh, it's screening in Annecy basically uh, at the time you're listening to this, or about the time you're listening to this. So yeah, I, this is another one with like some prestige attached to it. It's another film that looks pretty gorgeous, and it's the director's first original anime film. And it was inspired by, like, after finishing your work on Place Further Than the Universe uh, and reaching Antarctica in the series, they opened a map and they looked for the opposite extreme from Antarctica, which in their mind, I guess, is Iceland, which, you know, uh, in spite of its name, is actually not as I see a place as you might think. So, yeah, you know, I really liked what I saw of a place uh, further than the universe, so definitely keen to check out Ishizuka's new work with this film. And, yeah, it's just really great to see G-Kids just really uh, do some great work uh, putting out some really cool uh, films and theaters this summer and even beyond. And they're not the only ones, because Eleven Arts has also gotten in on the game, because they licensed the House of the Lost on the Cape and Demo Memorial Keys. And they'll be releasing these in theaters probably later this year, next year. And yeah, like House Lost on the Cape is a new film from David Production, directed by Shinya Kawatsura, who is known for Nana Biori and Kokoro Connect, and Reiko Yoshida, who wrote K-On! My Letter from Listen to Blue penned the script, and designs are done by Kamakawa and Yuri Yuchi composed the music. And it seems like, a, again, a really nice story about a person who has dealing with loss and the kind of grief that has kind of made them unable to, you know, really speak, you know, find healing in a rural place and be able to open up again, find their voice again. And I think that's a sweet, sweet story. And the other film that they license is Demo Memorial Keys, which is based on the franchise, the rhythm game Demo, which I don't have much experience for it. But stylistically, I think it looks very cool from the poster. It's about... You know, the eponymous camera Diva, who's a lonely character who plays piano in a castle, and one day, you know, a girl who loses their memories falls from the sky, and so, you know, it's a gentle, if you remember, musical little story. And so, yeah, I think that has a cool team to it. It looks very visually interesting, so great to see some new film licenses from Evan Arts, and definitely keen to check these out in theaters when they drop. And now we're going to move on to some films releasing from Crunchyroll soon this summer, and this one I wish we had a little more heads up for, because it's coming later this month, and it's only just announced a few days ago at the time of this recording, within the month, and that's Fruits Basket Prelude. It's going to be opening here in America on June 25th. It's only going to have a limited run. It's only playing on the 25th, 28th, and 29th. What's up and dubbed? And it also playing in the UK only one day on July 28th with English Up Only. But yeah, so, you know, obviously this is the story of Toru's parents and how they met and formed a relationship and a lot of the events that led up to the beginning of Fruits Basket. And I find a lot of Kyoko's character very compelling. A lot of moments of the story even in spite of some of the problematic aspects of it. So I was definitely excited to check this out uh, when it did get licensed over here. I'm glad it's coming to theaters, but it's a little frustrating. Again, this is going to be released at a time that I may be uh, away and unable to get to a theater to see it, which I mean, I hope that the, the turnaround then for the DVD or streaming release for this uh, will be quick after. But still, I think it's great that we'll be able to get to see this film in theaters 
years. I think that was a great experience. I really enjoyed seeing the first two episodes of the new anime in theaters back when it premiered like two years ago at this point. So glad now, now you know, you kind of have like a, a coda to it. You can come full circle with the beginning showing theaters here in Aragorn and also now the end uh, of the anime being shown here in Aragorn. Even though technically it's a prequel, but you know, prequels also sequels. But uh, the other big uh, anime film that they'll be releasing this summer and another one that we've well, been long waiting is coming up at the end of the summer and Colton I guess do you want to take this one? Yes please because uh, it's looking like we finally have a date for Dragon Ball Super Superhero just to give this context Twitter user Trick the TM which uh, hey I know that guy I follow him uh, actually confirmed at a theater in uh, Bensalem Pennsylvania because at that theater I guess apparently they had the theatrical poster posted for Dragon Ball Super Superhero with the date of August 19th on there so it is pretty much assumed that that's when it's going to be in theaters in North America but apparently basically this is probably a leak because Crunchyroll hasn't actually confirmed this date yet but uh, it's looking pretty likely that August 19th is the date that this is going to be in North American theaters. So uh, pretty excited about that. Uh, I actually might be out of town uh, when this movie is in theaters, but uh, unlike when I had to miss both Battle of Gods and Resurrection F because I was out of town for both of those, I might actually have the time to see this actually, funny enough, while I'm in Pennsylvania that weekend. So um, yeah, I'll hopefully get to see it while I'm out of town. But uh, that is assuming that this is the release date, which again, I, I think it's pretty likely. I think somebody at this theater just happened to put up the poster way too early. Yeah, I think that's what happened for sure. And I think that it works out. It makes a ton of sense for the 19th of August to be the release date because, you know, looking at the summer, July is too stacked and you don't want to have the film go up on the same month that Tor Love and Thunder comes out. Yeah. You, know, you yeah. want it because that, that has competing audiences, Dragon Ball and Marvel films. And then on the 5th, there's a lot of movies actually coming out on August 5th. Uh, and that includes Bullet Train, which I don't, Bullet Train will probably be on the upper end of hits this summer. I don't know if it's going to be like a big hit, but it is a film that has some buzz going on it with it. Okay. So it makes sense to keep away too close to that. Like 12th isn't too heavy, but still the 19th, there's like only one other film coming out. So superhero will have pretty little competition. It'll be far enough away from like the other big summer movies that they uh, won't have as much draw to them. So it'll give it the best potential this summer. Uh, in terms of release dates, to attract a big crowd in its opening weekend and, and get a lot of business. So I think this was a good programming uh, release strategy from Sony's part and Toei's part. So yeah, it makes sense to me. It's a little... It's going to be just a little frustrating to wait two months to see the movie because, you know, we're all... It's going to be hard to avoid the spoilers. Oh, yeah. You know, like Broly was just barely manageable because we got the movie a month after. This is going to be two months after, which, I mean, compared to, again, like Resurrection F was four months after and Battle of Gods was a year after. So, you know, this is like still potatoes compared to that. But still, I mean, I, I'm excited, of course, for the film. I've been following the news very closely, you know, I'm following the trailers very closely. And it's going to be very exciting because, like, it's going to be very different from recent Dragon Ball films, I feel. Obviously, the CG element, but also because it's not going to be about Goku and Vegeta. This is a Gohan and Piccolo movie streams through, based on everything I've heard. Pretty minimal Goku-Vegeta involvement, and that's actually very exciting to me, to have Gohan in the spotlight and the center of this movie, and give like some other characters a chance to shine. 
And apparently Piccolo is going to have the most he's had to do in a Dragon Ball Please. film uh, since the early <laughs> Z films in this thing. So, I mean, I mean, you already know that his new form and whatever is coming, but just character-wise, like, there's going to be a lot for him. So I'm excited to see that, Oh, too. my God. I am legitimately excited to see Piccolo use a smartphone to FaceTime the Gohan family. That's where that's where I'm at with Dragon Ball right now. That trailer was very cute. <laughs> and it's like, you know, Videl calling him, FaceTiming, he's like, hey, can you pick a pan? He's like, what, why can't Gohan do it? And he's like, he's, he's locked himself up in his room and working. And then oh, she's like, oh, thanks. Uh, I'll give you a bunch of stuff animals. It's like, what, why do I want... I don't want these. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so funny. You know, I just like this kind of charming character in Dragons and moments like that. And I like the series playing oh, into that. Oh, so. so excited. I think that's going to be <laughs> entertaining parts of the movie. I like the tone that the movie's going for. So. Oh my god. I'm so excited to see more Piccolo. He deserves more screen time. Yeah. I think this is going to be very satisfying for a lot of us who have been like, I would like to see the story give people outside of Goku and Vegeta a chance to be the hero here. And hey, this one, Gohan, will get to be the superhero. Yes! Very excited. Well, that's not the only big film that Crunchyroll has planned to release pretty soon, because they are also going to be releasing Makoto Shinkai's newest film that's coming out later this year, outside internationally, including North America, in early 2023. And so, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to Suzume no Tojimari and its story about, like, a girl who uh, finds another world outside, like, a mysterious void there, too. And so, yeah, you know, enjoy Shinkai's series films. I'm very excited and keen to see what his new film will have to offer. And, of course, I am very reassured to know that this will be uh, released by Crunchyroll internationally next year uh pretty hopefully pretty soon after the japanese release so it's interesting to me kind of the exchange here between like who has the rights to which is shinkai's films because your name was with funimation now under country wall whatever you do went to g kids and now country has again got his next film so it's kind of interesting that they've gone back and forth because they're all all the films have been done by comics wave so i wonder what is the negotiation like for these different film deals but i'm just Either way, I'm just excited to see his next film in theaters when it does come out, because they are definitely cinematic series of how, you know, visually gorgeous they are. And of course, Crunchyroll has been doing pretty well with their film releases, uh, and the films that they apply to for theatrical release, the most recent of which being, of course, Jujutsu Kaisen Zero, which has, in Japan, ended its theatrical run, officially as the seventh biggest anime film ever released worldwide. Which is quite impressive for it, and that also places it as, like, the 15th highest grossing film in Japan of all time. Of course, it was already the highest grossing film uh, in Japan in 2021. So, yeah, I mean, it was a big movie. Big success. And overall, it earned about over 108 million yen in Japan, which was quite impressive. So, yeah, it was a big hit, and it definitely, much like the Demon Slayer film success, although Demon Slayer is, like, uh, magnitude nine's more of a success, but it's still, you have to imagine they're going to plan for another Juju Heisen film. It shows the strength of this franchise internationally. Sorry, just a small correction. Are you sure you don't mean $108 million? Yeah, I mean that. What did, I, did I say yen? You said yen. That's, that's why I said that. Sorry. Okay. Well, I meant dollars, but yeah, in terms of yen, it's 13.75 million yen. 
But yeah, I mean, it had a healthy, like, almost half-year run, and it did quite well. So, I would imagine that we will hopefully see another Jujutsu Kaisen film be made. And I'm curious when it will be and what it would be when it does get made. In the meantime, though, of course, with anime being so successful internationally and worldwide, that turns attention back here in the States and in Hollywood towards adapting anime uh, into live-action projects. And we have news that a new Robotech live-action film project is being directed by Reese Thomas, who directed the Hawkeye series uh, for Disney+. Plus. And it's going to be directed for uh, Sony Pictures, script written by Art Macrum and Matt Holloway, who wrote scripts for Iron Man and Uncharted. And there's going to be a rewrite of the script done by the duo behind Sharper, Brian Gatewood and Alessandro Tanaka. And producers for 300 and the Immortals, Mark Hampton and Gianni Yulanami, are going to produce the project. So, pretty strong team. And, I mean, staff on this team has uh, been changed hands many times. I mean, this Robotech film has been trying to... I, Cameron Gold is trying to get this made for, like, decades now. And it's, you know, flipped different distributors, flipped different studios. A lot of different people have been hired on and off to work on this over the years. But, you know, after the big agreement between Big West, Illinois, and Harmony Gold back in spring of 2021, I would imagine that that has led to a lot of kind of synergy and the treatment of both Robotech and Macross's franchises uh, and how they want to handle reintroducing these franchises going forward. So I wouldn't be surprised if this film project finally starts getting more traction and actually does get made in the next few years. So, very, very interesting. But perhaps even more interesting is that there's going to be another stab at another classic staple of Japanese anime in America in live action again. And that, my friend, is Speed Racer. That's right, we're getting a live action Speed Racer TV series over at Apple, executive produced by J.J. Abrams, which is um, just pretty interesting. I don't know how I feel about this. Like, honestly, if we were going to get, like, another live-action Speed Racer thing, I would have honestly preferred a sequel to the live-action movie from the Wachowskis, but I don't know if that'll ever happen. Yeah, I mean, it's been 14 years at this point. Yeah, but I don't know. I'm just... The, the novelty of a studio making another live-action Speed Racer thing, that we're going to have more than one live-action Speed Racer property in existence, it's really surreal to think about. And I don't know, like, am I going to like it as much as the movie? I don't know. But you know what? This one, this one is just so, like, bizarre and out there that, like, I'm willing to check it out and see. Like, you know, I was really trying to avoid getting, like, Apple TV or whatever. But, like, I might get it for this, maybe. I'm probably going to end up getting a free trial just to watch this because I, I need I need to see how this goes. And we might we might talk about it on the Patreon. Who knows? Yeah, if it ends up getting made because this project has been in the works for years, but the development process has been slow. And this is one of several different projects that Bad Robot and Abrams are, are they are working on for Apple. And one of several projects they are making in general as part of Abrams' $250 million deal with Warner Brothers, which is under scrutiny by Warner Brothers and uh, their new CEO, David Zaslav, as he has come into the company and is down on anything that is not turning an immediate profit. You know, the famous <laughs> recent thing about like, why did we fund this vanity project? We don't owe any actor anything, even people who make stuff, Jeez. you know, uh, always reliably under budget or whatever. 
and our big theme celebrities, you know. And he, of course, coming from the Discovery world, is, is I would say, familiar with making, like, cheaper content uh, quickly than just producing a lot of it. And so that's kind of the philosophy I worry he's bringing in here to projects like this for that it costs, like, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. So uh, that might put some of Brad Robot's projects in jeopardy. Maybe this Apple deal kind of at risk or compromised. And so we'll see how the, the Speed Racer project shakes out. But hopefully it does get me. I would like to see another stab at it. And, you know, another take of it that, you know, goes in a different direction from the Wachowskis. Which I love their vision. And I would be interested in seeing, like, how would another team approach the challenge of adapting and translating Speed Racer into live action and making that work. So I'm I'm very interested in seeing what the how this take will turn out if it does indeed hopefully get made. Something else I'm interested in is that Bandai Namco Pictures is collaborating with uh, SK Global to produce an English language live action series based on Tiger and Bunny, and apparently is going to be written and show run by M. Raven Metzner, who I believe was the writer of Elektra and a producer on Iron Fist, so... Interesting choice. Um, I have not heard good things about Electra and Iron Fist. It wasn't like the worst thing in the world, but it wasn't. It's my least favorite of those like old Netflix Marvel shows. So like Iron Fist for me was laughably bad in that it literally made me laugh at how bad it was in the first episode. Oh, man. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't good. So I, I don't know how to feel about that. But I mean, I don't know. Like, I'll give it a chance, but I'm not super hopeful about how this will turn out i wonder if this is what and um because we talked about how like there were plans originally to make like a live action tiger and bunny movie i wonder if this is like what it turned into or this is like a completely different project maybe this is an evolution of those plans but i guess we'll see how this turns out and we'll see if it actually does get put into production and come out in the next few years. Mm -hmm. I'll give it a chance, but we'll see how it turns out. For sure. Now, speaking of infusion between Hollywood and anime and, like, interpretations of that, you know, we had Blade Runner Black Lotus come from Adult Swim last year, you know, an anime series inspired, taking place in the world of Blade Runner. And that series, you know, it came to an ending, but it's going to have a comic sequel that's going to come out on June 15th from Titan Comics that'll continue our story after the end of the season. And it's going to be written by Nancy Collins, who's done writing on Swamp thing and being illustrated by Enid Balam who drew a Hakai K Bishop so I think that's a great team I really enjoyed Black Lotus and I was left curious at the end like what does the future hold for Elle now that she's kind of free from kind of the baggage of her past and so I think the sample pages look very promising definitely keen to see where Elle's dream will take her and I feel like this is kind of an indication though that they probably won't end up producing a second season I think like a lot of the co-practice between Crunchyroll and Adult Swim for various, you know, kind of logistical reasons of, like, those companies may not be able to partner up uh, together as easily anymore now that they're not owned by the same company to produce shows. means that having sequels to those shows made under, with them co-producing, probably isn't likely. Which is why I think Adult Swim is looking, you know, to make their own anime projects uh independently no longer tied down with Crunchyroll, just working directly with studios which leads us to the two big new titles that they announced okay i'm just gonna rip the band-aid off this one 
Adult Swim is making a Rick and Morty anime, like a full 10 episode Rick and Morty series. Now, this isn't the first time Rick and Morty has been turned into anime because there are obviously tons of like shorts and specials that like Adult Swim has already done and that you can watch on HBO Max, which I've actually liked a lot of those. I still haven't watched the one starring Summer yet. I still need to get around to that one. Yeah, they're all very good. I like them. Like the Genocider one, the Akihabara one, some. I think that they all had really good uh, takes on Rick and Morty and just translating to an anime style. So I, I feel like Genocider I prefer because it, you know, it's like, you know, traditional energy. I like the character designs there more. Uh, but yeah, I, I appreciate them. And I think that the studio behind this, the director behind this, is an interesting pairing to have to adapt and interpret Rick and Morty into further anime adventures with Takashi Sano, who directed on, uh, Tower of God, and Telecom Animation, who, you know, does animation for Lupin and did Shenmue, which I think Shenmue looked pretty decent. Apparently, we'll get teams and events from the main anime series, so it'll be like kind of maybe reinterpreting, reimagining. When you Rick and Morty, of course, being about like multiverses, parallel universe, it could be like interesting different takes on storylines in the main series. So I'm pretty interested. I'm pretty interested in this thing. I don't have like strong feelings, but I think, oh, this is interesting. I think these anime experiments for Rick and Morty have worked out so far, and I'm curious to see how this will turn out. You know, like, I still like Rick and Morty enough to where, like, when a new season's out, that's, like, appointment viewing for me. So, yeah, when this eventually airs on probably Adult Swim Toonami, or it'd be funny if they just if they just aired this on regular Adult Swim. Um, but eventually when it airs on TV, I'll, I'll definitely like catch this because I'm interested in seeing how this turns out. Yeah, it's interesting because the announcement it specifically said that you know the next series Return of Saga Ninja Comedy is going to be on Tsunami. and Demarco has said like, oh, this is a series that's coming to Tsunami. but I had never have not specifically said that the Rick and Morty anime will be on Tsunami, just on Adult Swim. I. You know, Tsunami could use the content, so, and, you know, Rick and Morty's big draw, so I kind of hope it does play on Tsunami, but I could see the argument for why it wouldn't. And also, with how they've treated it in the past, like, they've had the Rick and Morty anime shorts, like, air after Tsunami at some points, but they end the block before the short starts. So, even though it's in the same time slot, it's like time filler for movies that, you know, are airing on Tsunami, they don't have it be actually a part of Tsunami, which is strange. So, I don't know why they feel the need to separate it from that. And it's not been consistent, because there has been times where it's like, oh no, this is a part of Tsunami, and advertising part of Tsunami. So, I don't, I don't know how they'll treat this, but we'll see. I mean, there's also been rumblings, you know, again, with Zaslav in Battle League radical changes at uh, Adult Swim at a lot of the Warner Turner networks. Adult Swim uh, heard rumors that, you know, they might be at risk of, like, just being completely cut from linear TV broadcasts and just become a thing on HBO Max. So, I mean, this is just, like, you know, through the grapevine rumors, but, like, I, I, I don't place too much stock in it, but, like, I, I am kind of worried. I do have some concerns for, like, the future of a lot of projects under the Warner umbrella right now with the new management taken in. So, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting. But I, I hope the best for these projects and hope for the best for the sex for them on Adult Swim. Uh, especially the next one, which is going to be an original project. 
directed by Sung Ho Park, director of Jesus Kaisen. So, I mean, it's like, I feel like that's like a, a telling power move. Like, hey, we can't get Jujutsu Kaisen for various uh, reasons, but hey, we can get the guy who made Jujutsu Kaisen to make a show for us, which I think is a cool move. And yeah, so Sung Ho Park directing it, Takeshi Okazaki, who designed for Afro Samurai, Star Revision, Better Ninja, which great designs. So he's designing characters. Production from E&H and Sola. Who again did Black Lotus and are doing the new Lord of the Rings anime film and producing. So yeah, uh, this is gonna be about a guy who's like a Nuke Nin, a former ninja who escaped his kind of hiding from his wild past and Rollmaker's family, but then one night he's ambushed by a team of assassins from a former organization who is looking to exact a bloody revenge on him and his family for betraying their ancient code and rising from like his seeming death, he's gonna reemerge as his former self, Ninja Kamui, and avenge his, you know, fallen friends and family. So he's a 21st century Ninja, a shadow anachronism, pitting his ancient skills against high tech weaponry, over finesse. And he's gonna face up against trained decisions, combat cyborgs, and rival ninjas to break up the very clan and meet him. So I think it's a fun premise. And again, with the team involved, I think it has started to be a really cool series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll definitely check this one out too. For sure. Uh, you wanna know what else I'm gonna check out? Me and Robico is actually getting an anime for real this time. <laughs> And that's about all we know at this point. This was literally just announced, like, very recently, so we don't have any more info on this. But, uh, yeah, it's finally happening. Me and Robico is getting an anime, and uh, I'm going to be watching that shit every week. <laughs> Good for Robico. It's the gag series I could. And I just loved how, in series, they reacted to announcement and dedicated a chapter to the characters, <laughs> like, feeling like they had to change themselves and, and their uh, characters and the extended cast trying to appear more often so that they can get put in the anime more <laughs> and become the new main character of the series. It was a great chapter. I love that spirit of Robocop. I think it's going to translate into a really fun anime if they get really good director, a uh, really good team behind it. I would almost like to see it have kind of like a experimental take and aesthetic in the same way Pop Team Epic did. So I would be really keen to see how they do this. I hope it gets like a Really interesting adaptation, not just a workman kind of straightforward one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't wait to watch this. This is this is going to be anime of the year. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Hopefully, and there are a lot of other anime I'm looking forward to too from manga I really like, including Kubo Won't Let Me Be Invisible. That's getting an adaptation that's going to come out probably next year at this point. And it's going to be directed by Kazumi Koga, who directed uh, Rent a Girlfriend. It's going to be done at Studio Paijin, who did Kageki Shoujo anime. Scripts are being done by Yuya Takashi, who did scripts for Lupin Part 4 and Lanka Logic. And Yoshiko Saito from Kama Girls is designing the characters, and I think the designs look very good in animation. Uh, very good in the their aesthetic that they're going to use for the anime. And so, yeah, I've been enjoying the series. It's just a very charming uh, rom-com series with very sincere, earnest, lovable characters. So very, very pleased to see this kind of anime. So, and I think that uh, a lot of fans will really enjoy it. It's just a very just wholesome and charming series. And uh, on the flip kind of, it's uh, Yuri is My Job is getting an anime adaptation as well. This has been a well-favorited Yuri series for a long time. And it's finally going to get an adaption courtesy of Passion and Studio Wings, directed by Keijiri Sante of Wasteful Days of a High School Girl, and designs by Taisuke Iwasaki. I think the designs are great. The, it's been produced by Infinite, and the trailer, you know, has some of the animation. It has some of the 
how it's gonna translate and I think it looks really good and this is a title that I need to check out more of but I really like what I've read so very very glad to see this get adapted into anime because this is one of the more popular Yuri titles out and being published and it's also one of a lot of people's favorites so very very happy to see it. But there's also a lot of new anime projects, but also a lot of anime projects returning for more sequel seasons or just even OVAs in the case of this next project. Yes, yes. So My Hero Academia is getting two new OVAs uh, that are going to be screening this June. And after they're done screening in Japan, they'll eventually be put up for streaming uh, later in the summer, which I'm, I'm sure those these will get picked up by Crunchyroll. And um these are both really interesting because I guess the first one is basically going to be a baseball episode, which is pretty great. And then apparently the second OVA is going to take place during like the Endeavor like internship arc or whatever you want to call it, where they have to like chase down a guy that's like posting graffiti all over the place. And at first Endeavor's like, I don't want to deal with that. That's like that's like small time stuff. At least he feels that way until his own house gets graffitied. Oh, no. <laughs> um. So these both sound really, really fun. I will admit um, I'm trying to think, because I remember that first special uh, that came out. I think it was the first special where they did like underground training or whatever. I didn't really think that was like super interesting, honestly. So these sound like a lot more fun. I'm actually like really looking forward to watching these when they're, uh, when they're eventually streamed. Absolutely. But you know what else I'm looking forward to is Mob Psycho 100 Season 3. And uh, we have a date for that. That is coming out this October. And uh, boy... Mob Psycho 100 in particular, I'm I'm a I'm a filthy anime only, and I haven't read any of the manga, <laughs> uh, so I'm genuinely really really excited to see how um how this season concludes the story because I'm pretty sure this is gonna like animate the whatever is left of the manga as far as I can tell. Yeah, that's from what I understand. There's only a little bit more of the manga left. Mm-hmm. And w- watching the trailer, I definitely recognize a lot of visuals and moments from when I like skimmed through the last few chapters of the manga just out of curiosity and um. Yeah, I mean, look, Mob Cycle 100, it's good, and Season 2 was, like, even better than Season 1, so, like, I'm really, really interested in how they're going to top themselves animation-wise when it comes to Season 3. Absolutely. And speaking of Season 3s, Konosuba, another series I love, is returning for a third season, though this time it is switching studios to Studio Drive, which, you know, may reflect Kawakawa's uh, intentions of like, oh, we're not going to wait for after whatever to be ready to do this. We're just going to go to a new studio. So hopefully that doesn't compromise the, the quality of it. But, you know, I think it worked out because Studio Dean did the first two seasons, JC Sapp animated the film, and both of those looked fine in different ways. Or good in different ways, rather. So hopefully Drive is okay, though. Like, the, I don't necessarily completely jive with the character designs in the poster. But also, in addition to this third season, is that the spin-off of Konosuba, the Mega Means Focus spin-off, so an explosion on the screen of the whole world, is also getting a TV anime adaptation. And so, yeah, it's cool. We're going to get, like, a double dose of new Konosuba anime project soon. And I really love the series. I really find it really funny and fun. And so I'm definitely looking forward to changing that. And hopefully, again, this changing studios doesn't compromise uh, the quality of the characters too much. And hopefully not, because the director of the series will be Yuji Abe, who episode directed for Kakuya-sama, Love is War, and Great Pretender, both great series. And Makoto Ezeso is once again in charge of series composition, and Koichi Kikuda is returning as the character designer. So, you know, so there's going to be returning staff, uh, even though the studio uh, in charge of producing it is changing. 
And we're moving on from sequel seasons to sequels just outright because The Seven Deadly Sins, for next to the Apocalypse, the sequel to Seven Deadly Sins, is getting its own TV anime adaptation. And so, you know, I've really been enjoying the series. It has a great cast of characters, just great shonen action and storytelling. And, and I think in some ways I like it even more than the original series. So I'm very excited that it's also getting an anime adaptation. I hope that the quality adaptation is strong. I mean, the last couple seasons and some of these sins uh, were not great in terms of animation quality. Oh, boy. But, you know, the teaser visual for this looks promising and, you know, hopefully it looks like they're going to avoid the CG route uh, like the film epilogues to the anime took. So, yeah, I am hoping the best for the anime adaptation of this and I hope that it does the action justice because the series has uh, some great, great action. Like, well, that animated well would just look absolutely great. Mm-hmm. Next up, I just want to mention that uh, Detective Conan, the culprit Hanzawa, which for those who don't remember, is a spin-off gag manga about the trademark shadowy silhouette person that's in uh, every case of Detective Conan. The anime for that is going to be airing this fall. Uh, Zero's Tea Time recently just ended, and uh, yeah, we're going to get the Culprit Hanzawa anime this fall. I'm assuming what's going to happen is it's going to air in Japan around October, and then we'll probably get it on Netflix like in December, so we'll it'll probably be on Netflix by the end of the year. That's what I'm guessing, but we'll see. Um, I'm very much looking forward to the Culprit Hanzawa, and I'm also looking forward to checking out Zero's Tea Time, which I'm I'm sure we're going to cover on One Podcast Reveals when we uh, find the time. So. Mm-hmm. And speaking of other Netflix projects, I mean, the last couple of things have been Netflix, and the next thing will also be Netflix. But now speaking of things coming to Netflix, pretty soon, finally, will be Stone Ocean's second core that's set to drop on September 1st. Yeah, that's episodes 13 to 24. And, uh, you know, um, I don't want to go on a whole big thing, but I don't subscribe to like the whole like, oh, Netflix ruined Jojo Fridays or whatever. But I, I will be honest, I have less drive to watch Stone Ocean because since it's going to be coming out in batches, I, I would rather just wait till it ends, honestly, or at least that's that's when I'm actually going to like get around to watching it. So maybe angry Jojo fans are onto something. I don't know. Yeah, I do think that the enthusiasm for it has been compromised by the fact that the series has just not consistently been releasing every week. So, you know, with the quick burst, it had like a lot of initial enthusiasm and interest. And, you know, there's still people talking about it. But like, you know, without like new episodes coming out every week, a lot of that hype and how that passion surrounding it does die down. And it is a shame to see. Mm-hmm. It, it makes JoJo less appointment viewing for me, which is like really weird. Yeah. And also this gap between releases feels to me like it is telling of the fact that, you know, David Productions is maybe stretching themselves thin and maybe they should have held off on releasing even the first batch of episodes until they had more done and more ready. Probably, yeah. Because they need this extra time to properly put out these next batch of episodes. It just shows, like, maybe they're taking on too much. And uh, maybe, you know, Netflix's schedule and requests of them just were not uh, tenable for, you know, sustainable releases. Which is a shame. It is, yeah. 
But we're going to close out our news here by talking about, you know, the next anime available on Netflix we want to highlight, and that's Pokemon Journeys. Of course, the latest English dub season of Pokemon Journeys has just started up on Netflix, but also the anime itself is entering a new arc, the World Championships arc, which has, you know, a lot of the long-time Pokemon fandom pretty hype, because Ash is fighting, he's in a tournament with the literal best trainers in the world. And now, the top eight, the Masters eight, Lance, Alan, Deanna, Leon, Cynthia, Steven, Iris, and it's really exciting. Like, literally, like, all these characters are champions. And it's very telling that they included Alan here, because, like, okay, they are going to have Ash versus Alan in a match. He's going to get a win over Alan after his defeat at him and XY. So that's super exciting telling. But, yeah, no. I mean, Journeys has been such an interesting series to follow. It really feels like it is bringing Ash's journey to a lot of closure with how many characters have returned and their stories being closure and the use of like all these characters and just building up to just this big tournament with again like the best trainers in the entire world so you know as a lifelong Pokemon fan of you are like it's really exciting to me and I'm really keen to see how this final arc of this series plays out and I, I do wonder if that means this is the end for Ash's journey or role as protagonist in the show maybe they'll go in a different direction with the next series or maybe they'll just you know reboot ash and reset him but like i feel like you know with every series they progress him a little bit you know his journey has been inching forever forward more and more and with him becoming champion of alola in sun and moon you know where was the next step for him but to fight like the other champions of all the different regions of the series to date so yeah it's just very exciting to me and so I definitely just wanted to spend some time to discuss about that. But also, you know, if this is truly going to be the conclusion, the code of Ash's character, it does draw attention to this other piece of news that kind of does bother me. That Riko Matsumoto apparently has never been paid any royalties from Mizaze Pokemon Masters, the iconic team song for Pokemon, played a plenty in every series for over two decades now. And she like she was only paid like seven hundred seventy one dollars in today's. She- for the song when she first recorded it. And just think about how big that song is and how many CDs it is all over. Two million CDs and copies and various releases since 1997. So that's uh, unfortunate. Like, there is also a big controversy here in North America with the English Pokemon theme song from the artist who wrote and recorded that filing a lawsuit uh, against four kids in the Pokemon company for, you know, more royalties over that. And ultimately settling for an amount that was just less than $100,000, which, you know, again, the value of the of Pokemon as a brand is billions of dollars. And the value of that song as part of that brand in terms of, like, you know, its inclusion, not just a show, but in, like, you know, ringtones, all these different products, just snippets of that theme and that song, that's easily billions of dollars, well, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue value. So, like, again, going back to our point about Unions, artists uh, really get screwed without like proper representation and knowledge of their legal rights. Oh, yeah. Out of like the royalties, the compensation they deserve for the value of their work. So that's an unfortunate thing for me. But of course, obviously, with Rika Matsumoto, she's a storied uh, career voice actress, so she's doing well, but it's, it's frustrating. She definitely deserves those royalties for this song, especially after, again, two and a half decades of the song being so tied and gillable to the brand of Pokemon. But yeah, that's one of uh, a piece of stories. So I wanted to close off 
with our news coverage today, and I think that'll be it for uh, all the news that we had to say on this episode, which again was all quite a lot, and we still have more to go in next week's episode, and hopefully we can get to all of that next time too, because we also got, of course, simul pubs to talk about with all the new jump series, Hakaru in the Light from Ozkey. So there's going to be a lot to talk about. But of course, like I mentioned before, you know, we are excited to talk about it all. And also, like I mentioned before, uh, I have community shoutouts that are related to the Union story in Seven Seas, uh, mostly related. And so, starting off, Seven Seas, like we mentioned before, has kind of stopped their licensing Wednesdays. And taking advantage of that, the United Workers Seven Seas have started their own Worker Wednesdays campaign, where every Wednesday they're going to be, you know, spotlighting, featuring a different union or Lego organization, and giving people a rundown of the work they do. They started off, you know, because it's Pride Month, talking about Pride at Work, and they just go over the history of Pride at Worker Foundation, what they do, and what their accomplishments have been and I think that's a really good cool thing for them to do and for them to take advantage of it's like hey you know now that 7Cs is kind of step out of doing their you know licensing Wednesdays we're going to do work to promote you know other unions and solidarity with all these other great organizations that are protecting workers rights and all other different labor unions and so yeah that's really really cool and so definitely follow that Twitter account at UW7S but also I think you can search for the just worker Wednesdays in your Twitter search and you should be able to find this as well but yeah it's a really cool thing I'm excited to see what other different unions they're going to spotlight going forward I also want to spotlight a lot of other articles that have been covering the union and going over some, you know, union history and also what the Seventh Union hopes to achieve. So Comics FYI had a great interview with representatives from Seven Seas, uh, talking over, you know, what they hope to achieve in forming a union, talking about working conditions of Seven Seas and what they've been like and what they're trying to change. And I think that's very informative and very educational, like what their working conditions have been and like what they hope to improve in the working environment of Seven Seas. So I think like this is a good educational piece of like what things have been like and what they hope to change. And the OSG did a great piece on the Seven Seas Union in the context of other labor movements. You know, they have a good primer on just explaining unions and union rights and the state of unions in the country, kind of the timeline events and different circumstances that have led to the United Workers of Seven Seas being formed and trying to organize at Seven Seas. So I think that they did a great job of contextualizing why now it is so necessary for the union to form and putting it in the context and with, you know, educational founding of like what unions are and like what they can accomplish, what they have accomplished. And similarly, I found the Lucretia Report channel's video, which is also linked in the OSG's article on the history of labor unions. Very interesting and educational. Because, you know, he goes even further back kind of before pre-industrial times to talk about kind of the earliest forms of workers kind of collaborating in solidarity to petition for their rights as laborers, like even back in the days of serfdom. And so it's kind of an interesting historical overview of the evolution of labor movements as the evolution of industries and how that has changed over centuries. And then, of course, going into recent times about how kind of modern politics and kind of conspire to mitigate a lot 
of achievements and workers' rights and the ability to organize and how that has kind of led to a lot of the exploitative working environments we see in many companies and industries today and when it needs to change. And this review was made a year ago, so it was made before a lot of the recent resurgences in activism in pushing for more organization and unionizing across different industries. So I think that's been encouraging since then. I think it's like still a very, very informative educational video on the history of unionizing in the workplace. Similarly, I really appreciated John Oliver's video on union busting uh, a few months ago. And we talked about how Seven Seas has hired a union busting firm on our coverage. And what does that mean? I think that John Oliver's video kind of goes into good detail. Like, okay, here are the practices and the tactics of union busters to try and, you know, frighten, intimidate, and scare workers into standing down and not joining the union in very misleading ways and very, like, just... Outright lying to them too, just trying to scare them to not attempting to join. And I think that his take on it is, of course, pretty fun as he tends to do, but it is also very educational and very terrible with a lot of, you know, very eye opening examples of like actual like training videos that these companies actually show to try and scare employees into not joining. So I think that would, that's a good primer of like what union busting is and the tactics that a lot of companies are actually trying to use. I also think that the More Perfect Union channel on YouTube is like also a really great educational research to keep track of like all sorts of different labor movements that are happening across country in different industries. Like they report on and make videos that highlight a lot of different union campaigns and workers' rights stories nationwide. So I think they make videos pretty consistently. Uh, they've talked about like a lot of different movements like just in the past week about like Starbucks efforts to stifle union organizers and coming up with absurd excuses to fire them. I'm talking about Amazon workers in North Carolina unionizing, Los Angeles strippers unionizing, and all sorts of like different stories of people across the country, like in different workplaces, joining together, collaborating, uh, organizing to try and fight for their rights. And I think that it's pretty interesting to follow and pretty educational to follow to see like what different efforts are going on just pretty much every day uh, in the world of unionizing and trying to improve working conditions in a lot of different industries across the board. And similarly, the Union Strong podcast, I think, is a really great educational resource. They are a podcast that is produced by the New York State chapter of the AFL-CIO, which is one of the bigger, like, union conglomerates that, you know, work to support unions across country. They're the largest federation of unions uh, in the U.S., made of 56, you know, national and international unions. And so the New York chapter's podcast, you know, they do a lot of episodes. They mainly focus on unionizing efforts in workplace in New York, but they do also touch on international unionizing efforts and also uh, historical precedences and uh, moments that were crucial to the cause of labor and how it's evolved in the country and how labor organizing has evolved in the country. So I think this podcast is a very, very, very educational resource. And uh, for other takes on just the news of Seven Seas unionizing, I would recommend listening to uh, Long Imagination's take on it and the OSG's podcast's take on it because I think both Darfox on Long Imagination and also Helen on OSG, you know, they can bring in some of their own personal experiences working alongside in, in workplaces unionizing and how their perspective, you know, on this move and what they expect and see for it. And uh, on the OSG podcast, 
podcast episode on it. They had a very good discussion about like in terms of like what we've been seeing out of Seven Seas in terms of recent news uh, and conditions there and what we've been hearing about and like how Seven Seas has responded to this and what they hope to see happen out of it. So I think, you know, for again, for other takes on the news from very good perspectives, I would definitely recommend them. And then my final shout out is not like specific to the story of Seven Seas unionizing or like unions specifically in particular, but it kind of still fits in with the overall ethos of banding together uh, in solidarity and collaborative collective action against, you know, oppression against unfair conditions. And that is Renegade Cut's recent video on Star Trek and the team of Radical Hope as explored across the series. And basically using Star Trek and its setting of like being kind of a utopian post-capitalist future as a way of like exploring, well, you know, this is something that is like achievable. Like exploring in the timeline of the series, like why this came to be and then also uh, just exploring takeaways from it of like, well, you know, this series, you know, it is yes a work of fiction. It is also a product by me by this corporation but it has value because of the themes and messages that are espoused in it that are so meaningful and that can reflect on a genuine hope and optimism for things that can be achieved in our world and that includes what we see in the optimistic uh, future of Star Trek of like even though you know conflicts are not resolved uh, they're not there's no, it's not like there's no conflict in Star Trek but it imagines a future where uh, oppressive uh, institutions and stuff uh, it's a post like scarcity world it's a world where it, that imagines a future where people are free from the burdens of like having to fight to survive and are free of being exploited and just free to pursue a world in which they can pursue their own happiness first and foremost because they are you know provided with the resources and the tools that allow them to achieve that and so I think that kind of philosophy that ethos fits in well with the goal of labor movements to fight collectively on the behalf of, you know, the community of workers and both the individual workplace, but of course across labor institutions and the labor workforce just all over the world to just fight for a better world in which people's rights are taken care of, people are compensated fairly, and people are allowed to live better lives. And I think that's what I love so much about Ultimate. So the hashtag, one of the hashtags that United Workers of Seas has come up with, you know, Isekai is possible. Another world is possible. You know, we can live in a real world. We can achieve these things where people can live comfortably and fairly. And these are things that can happen if we can band together and we can agree on that these things are important and have value and we fight for them against, you know, forces that be that are trying to uh, suppress them. And so I think that video was, you know, very thematically appropriate and a occlusion I definitely wanted to recommend. And yeah, so those will do it for my shout outs for this episode. You know, uh, again, a lot of union specific stuff. You know, I definitely got in a particular like union uh, researching home recently, but I also just in general in the last couple months, again, because there's been a lot of labor movements happening across the country in different industries. Uh, in the animation industry uh, and various Amazon workplaces and Starbucks workplaces all over the country. And I think that's an encouraging thing to see that labor movements are continuing to rise uh, in different workplaces where should why that people are like finally banding together to stand up to these companies. Like, you should respect our time, uh, our rights, and, you know, we'll create more equitable workplaces. So, yeah. And that 
will about do it, I think, for this episode of the show. Had a lot to cover, a lot to say. Definitely a lot more to talk about next time. But I think that we're more thoroughly vented of everything we have to say today. But all we have left to let you know about is where you can find us. Just one more thing before we head out. Um, I mean, once again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. And hey, look forward to next time when we do cover a whole ton of simulpubs from Shonen Jump, Manga Plus, Azuki. And uh, yeah, just look forward to that next time. But yes, Lum is right. We should definitely end the show for sure and let you guys know where you can find us. Uh, Lum, why don't you start? Where can the good people find you? You can find me at Lumrayash on Twitter as Lumrayash as well on a lot of different places like Animation Revelation, Annulist, and Letterboxd. Remember, there's a Lumrayash. You can find me there by that name. You can also read my reviews on MongoRoads.com. We got a lot of books from in, a lot of reviews planned to go up. Look forward to more on there. That's also where you can find the other podcast I produce, Lum Squad. It is a podcast that gives you the wonderful and wacky world of Boomkakashi's Spirits of Yatsura, and we discuss the latest releases of manga published by Viz Media. We discuss the movies now that they're available on Crunchyroll streaming and Discotech on home video. And we are also very excited to talk about the new anime coming out later this fall. We have so many plans, so many things we want to talk about regarding the series. We're so excited. And if you enjoy hearing us talk about classic manga and one of the most trailblazing influential Akami manga ever, definitely check us out listen to us and you can find us on twitter at one squad you can find us on youtube just search for our name in the search bar and you can find us on pretty much every podcast platform you can think of apple podcast Spotify, stitcher anchor and we also cross post episodes on my words feed and post episodes early on the man patreon and if you like the art i make the animation illustrations I make, and the illustrations I do for the show, the thumbnails. You can find all that stuff on my Instagram, AnsetArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colty. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts outside of this one that you can find links to over on my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, you can click on the podcast page and you basically check out everything I've ever done, uh, including stuff I'm, you know, not a part of anymore, but still want to link anyway, or other guest spots I've done for other shows. Basically, if you're interested in literally any other podcasting endeavors I am a part of, please go to coltoncorner.wordpress.com, my personal blog, and uh, check out all my other stuff there. But as for this show, uh, you could find every episode of Manga Mavericks at Manga Mavericks. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast, basically depending on uh, what we have ready. You know, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast ready and edited before we're supposed to put it up on our main feed, uh, we'll put it up on our Patreon first, but that also really depends on uh, what we have done at any given time and uh, our scheduling and everything. Um, So if you want more reliable content, you really should sign up for our $5 tier, where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. Uh, Just like we mentioned at the top of the show, our newest bonus podcast for this month is a discussion of Akira Toriyama's one-shot Kintoki that was released in Shonen Jump back in 2010. We had our good friend Randy on from We Got a Podcast to uh, basically talk about our feelings on it after reading it, you know, all those years ago, over a decade ago. It was an interesting discussion despite our feelings on the one-shot compared to Toriyama's other works, but uh, if you've really been enjoying our podcast on Akira Toriyama stuff recently, you should really go listen to that along with all of our other bonus podcasts at the $5 tier. And yeah, you know, in general, 
Um, if you sign up for our Patreon, it really helps us. It keeps the lights on as far as like website and podcast hosting. Again, that's at patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Please sign up. Any patronage you give us really helps. As for everything else, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at manga mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash mavericks where we post different excerpts of the podcast, including some exclusive content every once in a while. Once again, that's at youtube.com slash mavericks. Please subscribe to us. Email us anything at mavericks at gmail.com. You know what? Uh, be like Eric at the top of the show and send us an email. Uh, we love getting emails from you guys and we love reading them on the show. Um, do you have any thoughts on the, any of the news we covered this episode? Are you reading anything that you want us to talk about on the show? Email us anything about manga, the podcast, and we'll read it on the show. Again, that's at mavericks at gmail.com. But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, you know, we're on so many different platforms at this point. Uh, but especially on Apple Podcasts and even Spotify, if you leave us a rating and a review, uh, it really helps the visibility of our show. And just in general, we love getting feedback from you guys, whether it's positive or negative. We want to use that feedback to make the show as good as possible. Um, but yes, that is finally about it for this episode. Once again, thank you guys so much for listening. This has been episode 204 of the Manga Mavericks podcast. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 205. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.